Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode called Consumed, we tell the story of the world's first Ferris wheel, a 265-foot-tall, 2-million-pound monster conglomeration of steel, iron, and steam. The machine would come to define the life of George Washington Gale Ferris before it would go on to ruin the life of George Washington Gale Ferris. How could a machine so serene have so many plot twists and turns in its story? It's about steel, it's about iron, and it's about one complex engineer. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO, that's J-E-R-K-O, for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com, they care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. This is certainly an interesting subject matter that uh, you didn't see coming. I don't think I saw it coming either. This kind of became, um, went from something of passing interest to a bit of an obsession on this particular story. And it's the story of two things. It's the story of the very first Ferris wheel, or so you'll come to understand, maybe not the very first Ferris wheel. And it's a story of the complicated engineer and brilliant mind that came up with the idea, George Washington Gale Ferris. It is a story of the late 1890s in America. It's a story of a country that is basically desperate to make its mark on the international stage. It's a country that is desperate to show its engineering, mechanical, architectural, and cultural prowess through the 1893 Columbians Exposition, the World Fair that would be held in Chicago. And it's the nexus of all these things that come together in one really magical machine that would almost define an entire era of the country. The machine would outlive its creator. The machine would outlive anybody's expectation for how long it would actually operate for. Of course, many people thought it would never operate at all. So when we begin to tell this story and understand that the story of George Washington Gale Ferris that we're going to weave into this whole thing is as fascinating as the wheel itself. It is kind of a neat combination of two stories and and this idea of the wheel which in and of itself is an incredibly massive and just overly humongous creation that almost defies description and and understand that it was built in 1893 and then there is George Washington Gale Ferris the man that uh, ultimately puts this whole thing together and the details of his life that we're going to talk about are what really make this story interesting um, and kind of next level it's what captured me when I started really digging into this story and trying to understand um, exactly kind of what my interest point was and it became much more about Ferris than the wheel itself and so I will tell you that when I began researching this story um, I kind of went in with an idea that I was going to catch Ferris in some sort of a compromising position so to speak in terms of his legacy and what I would later come to understand and maybe what you will too is through my recounting of it is this idea that um, it's a bit of a sad story it's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily the way you got to think this is going to work out for for George Washington Gale Ferris, and so there are some primary resources here that I'll, I'll, I'll kind of be using throughout this show. One of which is a book called Ferris Wheels: An Illustrated History by a guy named Norman Anderson. It is an incredible tome on 
you guessed it, the history of Ferris wheels. Um, you would think that this would be a very dry subject, and it turns out it's not. The other one is a book called Circles in the Sky by Richard Weingart, um, and it is more about the life and times of George Washington Gale Ferris um, than the wheel itself, although it does have a lot of great details in it. And, of course, during uh, this show, I will be referencing a lot of period newspaper clippings and and newspaper stories, um, as that was the primary means of kind of uh, getting everybody educated on on what was going on back then. So let's start talking about wheels. Uh, And we have to go way back in history to get this story started. We have to go back to the uh, the famed Noria water wheel, which was working about 400 years before the birth of Christ. And water wheels, of course, were used to move water. whether you had it, what was called an undershot wheel, where the wheel was in a river and the water would run under it, and then the force of the water would spin the wheel and it would elevate and dump the water out at a higher level. So many aqueducts were um, used this way. Or if it was an overshot wheel, where the water would pour down over the wheel and turn, and in turn that wheel would make power for something. Um, not electricity, of course, but it would make uh, movement that could be used to run pumps and mines, or it could be used to do any number uh, manner of work if you will kind of a giant flywheel that was powered by a body of water the noria wheel um you know as as people begin or people have reported on it as historians have looked at it claim it could have been up to 120 feet tall and it did feed the aqueducts designed to raise the water from a lower level to a higher level and it was powered by the force of the water, and when the, say, river would run low, it would actually be augmented by uh, power of uh, animals, um, kind of on what we would basically call a treadmill today. So what's interesting is that that uh, this idea of a wheel um, for doing work is something that's been around for thousands of years. This idea of a wheel as a you know kind of uh, entertainment device does not date back that far. Um, it, people may have ridden in those wheels, so it's kind of an interesting thing. But, you know, when we talk about the evolution of, of these kind of entertainment wheels, or as they were known way back when, pleasure wheels, um, records indicate around the 1600s, travelers saw a guy named Peter Mundy back in 1620 uh, saw people using what he would call a pleasure wheel. And the pleasure wheel was basically, if you can think of it, kind of a T-shaped device um, there would be four baskets on there, and it would be spun by hand or by animals, and it was 15 or 20 feet tall, and it was a very super rudimentary version of a Ferris wheel. Uh, the English had their own version. They called them ups and downs. So, you know, they're pleasure wheels. They're ups and downs. And the idea that these things are uh, located at fairs is another thing that goes way, way back. So, you know, in modern times, we can't really even think of a fair without picturing a ferris wheel it's just part of the you know part of modern life if you go to a fair there's going to be a ferris wheel there well the same could be said for hundreds and hundreds of years ago in england um that's exactly where the ups and downs were as well they were an attraction they were a ride english fairs began when vendors started to basically sell things uh whether it was goods and services or whether it was entertainment they would set up by religious sites because they knew the crowds are going to be there And then at some point, you know, attractions and rides were added. But, you know, if we go all the way back into this ancient, you know, very, very early history, um, you had ups and downs. They called them uh, whirly gigs, uh, perpendicular roundabouts, swings, overboats. They had all these different names. 
and kind of as proof about how little things change over the course of time. Uh, even back in the 1750s, they had their fair share of problems with uh, entertainment and amusement rides. Uh, quoting the, the book Ferris Wheels and Illustrated History by Norman Anderson, we go back to 1754, and I quote, Later in his description of the Bartholomew Fair, Morley reports the ups and downs in the fair broke down in 54, but none of the persons who fell with them were seriously hurt. The mob seized and burnt them, and to make the better bonfire, burnt the chairs, tables, and other peripheries of the black pudding sellers around the ups and downs. This may be the first reported accident aboard a pleasure wheel, and the only known case where the crowd destroyed the ride after the accident occurred. So it is kind of funny to go all the way back to 1754, and there are still uh, carnies having issues uh, with fair rides. Happens every summer here in the United States, and it's been happening all across the world since the 1750s. The Russians had their own version called the Kachelli, which was basically the same exact thing, although you would stand up in the cart as it would uh, travel around. The carts were kind of on a swing. And again, you're you're talking about two axles and four total carts. The height of this thing may be... 25 feet by some descriptions um so it's a it's a it's a low ride but in the terms of history uh unless you're in the rare occurrence of being able to go inside a castle and stand on a wall that was a couple stories tall uh being 25 feet in the air was a a very unique sensation for anybody at that time in history you simply didn't get to do that in regular life even the roof of your own home uh was not that high up so you know, they were, uh, it was a relaxing, fun thing to do and kind of a thrill to go in one of these ups and downs. And so when we talk about the evolution of things, again, I'm going to quote the illustrated history of Ferris wheels by Norman Anderson. And he writes, a study of ride evolution involves all the mysteries and frustrations of piecing together a description of the evolution of living things or the various inventions of humans over the centuries. Even if the Ferris wheel did have an ancestor, such as the ancient Noria wheel, in common with the ups and downs, there is evidence that suggests this evolution did not progress uniformly over time or proceed in the same manner in different parts of the world. As with the evolution of life, in which some living things have survived relatively unchanged over millions of years, such is the case with amusement wheels. Even today in some parts of the world, it's possible to find a primitive wood hand-turned pleasure wheel, presumably little changed over the centuries. And if modern wheels had not reached their undeveloped regions of the world, they probably soon will as the amusement craze spreads across Asia and Africa, as it did nearly a century ago in Western Europe and the United States. And so, you know, I think the point of that statement to me um, really kind of goes into the fact that, yeah, this is, a, this is an idea that's existed for a very, very long time. And it's an idea that's been in the United States uh, since 1849, as documented the New York State Fair, and in 1849, this, this gives you an example of how big fairs were, generally speaking. 65,000 people went to the New York State Fair in 1849, which is the majority of the population of the state of New York at that time. And there was a, a 50-foot-tall, hand-powered pleasure wheel there. It was four you know baskets that held two adults apiece. Um, a guy named Samuel Hunt and two guys, Samuel Hunt and James Mulholland, built it, and it was... A huge hit it was every single day there was a line to get on this thing and and it was kind of the biggest hit of the fair they actually took it down and then they would move it around as a kind of a roaming attraction in 1850 it went to the state fair in albany in 1851 they used a a modified version of it at the rochester fair so you know the idea that um the idea that ferris invented the concept of it of this wheel is incorrect but when we talk about what he does 
to advance it, that's a whole different thing. Now, the story really gets interesting. And I want to give you this background just to kind of set up the fact that, um, you know, pleasure wheels, if you want to call them that, or uh, roundabouts or ups and downs, however you'd like to define the term, have existed for way longer than George Washington Gale Ferris's idea. And the meat of our story is going to take place in the 1890s. But it is 1888 when things, um, let's say when things really get interesting. And the reason is because there's a guy in Atlantic City named William Summers. And William Summers is a carpenter. And he comes up with some ideas uh, on how to make some money. His family's been long established on Long Island. Uh, in fact, there's a place, uh, rather, in in New Jersey. And there's a place in New Jersey called Summers Point, which is actually named uh, after his family. Uh, certainly not after him specifically, but his family has been there since, uh, you know, like the, the 1600s or something. So if we quote the book again, William Summers, a descendant of John Summers, was an inventor and builder of amusement park rides. And on October 22, 1891, he filed for a patent for a 16-seat roundabout and was later awarded patent number 489,238. The Summers Company was also formed in 1891 and erected what was called an observation roundabout on the boardwalk between New York and Kentucky Avenue in Atlantic City. Much of what we know about Summers is the result of a patent infringement suit brought in 1893 by the Garden City Observation Wheel Company against the Ferris Wheel Company, builder of the giant wheel at the Columbian Exposition. In testimony given on October 31, 1893, Summers gave his age as 43 and stated he was a carp carpenter by occupation. And so this introduction of William Summers into this story is important because Summers is a guy who um, goes into the observation wheel business really uh, before anybody figured out that this was a really good way to make money. He's on top of it. He has three of these things in operation at the same time in various locations, Asbury Park, uh, Coney Island, Atlantic City Boardwalk, the guys all over the place. And I mentioned the fact that, you know, 1891, he, he kind of incorporates himself and gets a patent, but he had been doing this uh, since the late 1880s. And that timeline is going to be very important when we talk about uh, George Washington Gale Ferris and his own Ferris wheel that becomes internationally famous. And I did mention in that last quote about the idea that there was a patent infringement suit filed uh, by Summers, effectively the company that owned Summers' patent by that time in history in 1893. So, again, uh, not to, to totally grind the point to dust, but the idea that Ferris invented the wheel is something a lot of people believe, but is actually inaccurate. Um, I went into this, and once I got to this point in my own research, I thought for sure that, um, that it was going to be a, a story about Ferris stealing this guy's idea. And I'm not sure I can get totally away from that, and I, maybe you will be left with the same impression, but I think by the time we're done telling the whole story, uh, you will have a you will have a different opinion than the one that initially struck me was that, oh, wow, this dude stole William Summers' idea and all these things should be called Summers wheels. The 50-foot wooden wheels were successful. The only problem with everything being made of wood is the fact that in the 1890s, things had a, oh, I don't know how you want to say it, a very uh, good propensity to catch on fire. And this brings us to the first true headlines that William Summers makes, and they're not very good. We go to a newspaper, the Philadelphia Times of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 23 June of 1892, and the story is entitled Flames on the Beach, subtitle Atlantic City Visited by a Destructive Fire, sub-subtitle Whole Block Burn, sub-sub-subtitle 
Nothing But Ruin Between New York and Kentucky Avenues, The New Theater Destroyed, and the subheadline, subhead B, C, D, and F, about 20 businesses, houses, and places of amusement gutted by the fire, which threatened at one time to sweep the whole town. A land breeze fortunately prevented this and confined the destruction to the ocean front. The loss is estimated at $60,000. The story reads as follows. Atlantic City has been visited by another big boardwalk fire, another exhibition of impromptu pyrotechnics, another vivid object lesson in illustrating the necessity for an improved water supply upon, along the beachfront. At 8.15 this evening, a fire broke out on the boardwalk, and in two hours' time it swept the whole block of the beachfront from New York to Kentucky Avenue, causing the loss of thousands of dollars' worth of property. At 8.20, the alarm was turned on in front of the box of New York and Pacific Avenue. As the strokes ceased ringing, the number of crowds of people seemed to spring up out of the very pavement before the engines could get to the spot. There were already hundreds of spectators on the ground. All of the regular fire department turned out at once, and in less than a half an hour, it was seen that it was very necessary to bring out the reserve, and every engine in town was working at the top of its capacity around the scene of the conflagration. There was some little difficulty at first in starting the hose from Pacific Avenue, but in minutes, the water was streaming into the fire. The beachfront in Atlantic City is a guiltless of water main is guiltless of water mains, and all the water to be had there must come from the dead ends of water pipes leading down from Pacific Avenue, which fact ensures a not only overly vigorous and somewhat intermittent stream at the best of times. Before the engines were fairly working, the big observation wheel stood up against the glare of the fire in bold relief, and for a few minutes it seemed as though it might be possible to smother the fire in its infancy and save the valuable property in that block. That hope, however, was in short duration. The wheel was soon enveloped in flames. The fire stayed around the wheel for some time, and at last spread to the booths of the curio shops just above it, and there were mere tinderboxes. Its progress there was rapid. The point of anxiety during all this time had been Young and McShay's new theater at the corner of New York Avenue and Boardwalk. The building has but recently been completed and was to have opened on Saturday evening with an exhibition of the Bartholomew's trained horses. Every effort was made to save it. And while men were organizing a bucket brigade and doing valiant volunteer service on the roof, others were frantically engaged in carrying out the furniture and scenery lately placed in the hall. About half past nine, the theater caught on the ocean front in a few minutes was one seething mass of flame. Men stood on the roof looking down at its destruction until they were compelled to slide down its sloping sides to seek safety on the ground. About this time, an electric light wire gave way and fell into New York Avenue, causing a scattering among the big crowds. Luckily, no one was hurt. Men were busy tearing up the boardwalk at New York Avenue, hoping to stop the path of the fire there, but the burst of flames from the theater was so great that it leapt across the avenue. The front pavilion of the scenic railway was seen to be ablaze. Two or three minutes later, another fire broke out from the roof of the Serpentine Railway, and the sparks were falling and threatening a shower on the roof of Kipple and McMahon's bathing establishment. Prompt water attention soon did away with the danger in those directions, and therefore the flames were confined to the block in which they had started. At 11 o'clock, all danger was past, and the town again felt secure. The thousands of people who had thronged to the beach and the avenues adjacent to the fire quickly dispersed. The fire originated in a little cottage in the rear of the pavilion occupied by the observation roundabout. The house was owned by Thomas Jarman, who has his bathhouses in the square. The loss is estimated at at least $60,000, and the amount of insurance is only about 20000 among the usual crop of petty larcenies and usual fire happenings, with one casualty, namely, the death of William H. Poplar, who was stricken with heart disease while running to the fire. He is a Philadelphian engaged in the oyster business here for the summer. With his family, he has been occupying a house at 2617 Arctic Avenue. 
And so they make a brief mention of where the fire started there, but they don't necessarily go in to blame anybody. The New York Times, however, had a more comprehensive reporting of the whole matter, and they kind of went right down into the brass tacks. So now we go to the New York Times story, same date, and it reads as follows. The most disastrous fire ever experienced in this city occurred this evening. Fully $60,000 in damage was done. The fire started in William Summers' roundabout at about 8.30 p.m., just back of the boardwalk in between New York and Kentucky Avenues. The wind was blowing from the northwest at the time, and the fire spread rapidly up the walk. For fully two hours, the firemen could make no headway, and the entire square facing the ocean from Kennedy Avenue was soon one mass of flames. James Albert's handsome new Academy of Music, which was said to have opened this week, Thomas Jarman's Bathhouses, Camp's Fruit Store, Hazlitt's Shell and Novelty Store, Campbell's J.N. Smith's and Mervyn's Bathhouses, Fox's Shooting Gallery, Tackless Japanese Goods Store, and several other establishments were all totally destroyed. The fire crossed New York Avenue to Eleanor Adams' handsome baths, and it looked as if the whole square from New York, New York, to Tennessee Avenue would also go, but the wind dropped as the flames were spreading to Grimace Scenic Railway. Control of the fire was gained, and after another hour, the hard work of the flames were extinguished. Their principal work was centered in keeping the flames from spreading to large hotels on New York, New York, and Kennedy Avenues. The greatest excitement prevailed among the hotel guests who were lodged near the burning section. All kinds of prices, from $1 to $5, were charged to remove trunks and other hostelries, while the efforts and effects of the little stores were left unguarded. This was a disastrous fire, and the one thing you'll know about this time in history is that when something really traumatic happened, um, there weren't a lot of questions asked. It just happened, and I want to say people moved on with their lives, but they kind of did because, believe it or not, that happened in June, and on July 4th, 1892, William Summers was back at business. He had built another 50-foot wheel right in the same spot the other one burned down, and it was operating, and he was making money. So... Uh, it did not put Summers out of business. It frankly it barely even slowed him down. The other wheels he had were still making him money every day, and the 1892 fire may have put a brief crimp in his style, but it certainly didn't stop him. And it's at this point we're going to change gears in the story. We now know William Summers. We know that Summers has uh, made some headlines, maybe for not the best reasons, but we know Summers is making money in the pleasure wheel business. We need to switch our gears now and go back and start to tell the story of George Washington Gale Ferris. Because Summers and Ferris, well contemporaries, will intersect in a very interesting way, basically about the time of Summers suffering the major fire in Atlantic City. Now it's time to add the second man into the story and the man who will become the central point of this entire exercise. The man's name is George Washington Gale Ferris. George Washington Gale Ferris came from a very interesting family. It was a family that had helped establish the United States. They had arrived on our shores in the mid-1630s, and they had begun their settlement, uh, what we would now know as New York, and then they had gradually worked their way across the country. So the family was uh, instrumental in founding several different cities. They founded Knox University and in Illinois, and eventually it would become time for um, Ferris to grow up, and he grew up in Carson City, Nevada which was kind of one of the next conquests that his family had had when they went west. It was not a very settled place, but they knew some of the territorial government at that time, very early in the country's kind of infancy, and so they set up in Carson City, Nevada. 
It is a place where uh, he learns so many things. He has a great education there. His family is pretty well off. They're ranchers and farmers, and they do very well. And in 1873, he is sent to the Oakland Military Academy. Now, at this time in history, you were not sent to a military academy because you were a bad kid. You were sent there because they were some of their premier educational places in the country. So he goes to the Oakland uh, Military Academy from 1873 to 1876. And the reality is that people, um, there's no real record of his graduation, but everybody kind of agrees uh, collectively that he uh, graduated as a first lieutenant in 1876. Now he was able to take this particular graduation to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Now, RPI or Rensselaer Polytechnic is still one of the premier engineering schools in the country, but at this time in the 1870s, it was an incredibly exclusive place to get in. He was in a class with less than 40 people, and it was very stringent. It actually took him five years to graduate, despite the fact he was widely recognized as one of the smartest people in the entire place, but he did manage to make his way through. And over the course of his time, he became very interested in becoming an engineer on bridges and large kind of steel frame projects. And RPI at that time in history was on the vanguard of metallurgy and of engineering and of the kind of nexus of those two things. So as he graduates in 1881, he is hired by a guy named J.H. Ledley. And Ledley's company was a railroad engineering firm. Uh, it was one of the largest in the world at that time. Ledley built most of the bridges, the snowsheds, the trestles uh, on the Union Pacific portion of the Transcontinental Railroad. One of the other things about J.H. Uh, Ledley, it should be known, is he was one of the worst generals in the Union Army uh, during the Civil War, to the point where um, General Grant called him one of the most cowardly men he had ever met. He was uh, kind of disgracefully dismissed. Uh, he was a guy who drank excessively, uh, did not subject himself to any sort of danger, uh, led from the rear, uh, and was generally dismissed as one of a giant mistake to even have in any sort of a leadership position in the Union Army. Now, in 1882, uh, he was when he begins at the company in 1881, it's a rather kind of lowly position, but he's in there. And in 1882, only a year after he started, he was placed in charge of the complete design and construction of a three-and-a-half-mile railroad build in Charleston, South Carolina. And, you know, it sounds like a small project of three-and-a-half miles, but the reality is um, they had to do all kinds of, of different work to get this project done. So it was almost in miniature a, a great kind of design and execution experiment for him, and it showed his abilities to manage a project and, and to do something on a larger scale. In June of 1882, he quits the company. Uh, he was he was kind of replaced by Ledley's son's graduated college, and Ledley hired his son to be the vice president of the company. This did not sit well with Ferris, so he quits, becomes the chief engineer of the Queen City Mining Company in West Virginia. Now, during this job, he builds another railroad with tunnels and trestles, um, and all of this was designed because they had coal mines, and they needed to be able to access all the different areas where the coal was being mined. In the fall of 1882, uh, the mining business uh, collapses in this area of the country, so he is uh, left jobless, and the company is completely folded up. So as this is all happening, his dad has moved west yet again. From Carson City, Nevada, he moves to what is now known as Riverside, California, and effectively becomes one of the few people that found Riverside, California. Now, 
at this point, Ferris wanted to start his own business. He felt as though he had enough experience to start to apply that experience as a consultant or as, as somebody that could be greater than simply an employee for somebody else. And so he's able to kind of work his way into this by getting a job with the Louisville Bridge and Iron Company. And he's working on a singular project, the design and construction of a bridge that is owned by a very significant railroad company. And so he's put in a, a position of power here. Now, one of his best friends from RPI, a guy named Gus Kaufman, started his own firm in Pittsburgh called the Pittsburgh and Western Railroad Consulting Company. And so this was a guy that was doing smaller bridge jobs, but Ferris kind of looked at him and decided he wanted to do the same thing, but on a larger scale. So what happens is he ends up getting in touch with his RPI friend and another classmate named Frank Osborne. So Osborne, Kaufman, and Ferris all get together and kind of put their minds together to decide they're going to start a business designing bridges and uh, large kind of steel construction projects. This is a good job. This is a good business. And basically, Osborne is kind of the lead man on all of this where Kaufman and Ferris are working for him. In 1883, they get the job to help design the caissons for the Henderson Bridge Project, which is a massive construction deal. It is going to be one of the largest trestle bridges in the world. And so the caissons are the the footings for the bridge. These are these are kind of airtight areas. You're, you're building these giant concrete footings, the piers basically, that the bridge is going to sit on. And so this is what Ferris is put in charge of. So he's managing the construction of these caissons and it was a very dangerous thing to do when they built the Brooklyn Bridge uh, many men died you'd get the bends because you'd be kind of underwater and no one understood the pressure differential of being in this pressurized work environment and then just going up straight away to the, the street level and so this work takes a very bad physical toll on George Washington Gale Ferris and what we will learn throughout this story is that Ferris did not have the strongest constitution for stuff like this we're going to hear a few times where he has fallen even at a young age has fallen ill to different medical or, or physical kind of maladies and so he gets very banged up doing this work this managing and overseeing the construction of these caissons and so because of that he resigns his position and the company thinks so much of him that they say, well, you can't leave. We'll have you be in charge of the construction of the superstructure or the, you know, above ground portion of the bridge, the steel structure. And so the job that he got required him to travel to the steel mills to inspect the product, uh, to not only inspect the product, but to work on the engineering element of how it would be assembled and built. And so in 1884 and 85, this was his primary job and he would travel often to Pittsburgh to the Carnegie Steel Mills to inspect what was being made how it was being made to the grade it was being made and made sure that it was going to you know meet the needs of this bridge and everybody was going to be successful and on July 13th 1885 the, the Henderson Bridge opened it was at the time the longest trestle bridge in the world it was 27,995 feet long including the approaches Four and a half times longer than the Brooklyn Bridge. It cost about $2 million in money from 1885, which is tens and tens of millions of dollars today. And it was really the project that gave Ferris some swagger. It gave him this idea that he could 
be one of the guys that he'd always dreamed about being. His ancestry told him that his family was was made to do big things, not to do small things. They founded places. They built universities. They did all this different stuff. So his ancestry kind of spoke to him and said, I am destined to do big things. And completing this project is maybe the, the first moment in his life where it verified the fact that he was here to do big things. And so he kind of soaked up the praise and soaked up the, you know, accolades and the recognition he got for overseeing this project to its completion successfully, you know, and that's kind of a make or break. The bridge didn't fall down when a train went across it, so that's a win. And by all kind of intents and purposes, it didn't make him a household name, but in the world of engineering, it moved him up many, many notches. People knew within that community who George Washington Gale Ferris was. And so he leaves there and goes to the Kentucky and Indiana Bridge Company which is kind of a funny thing to think about. Think about an era in this country where there were so many bridges being built, so much expansion being done at the same time, that there were all these bridge companies, most of them owned by railroads. But the idea that, you know, you would go to every state and there would be multiple opportunities to work for a bridge company because everything was expanding so fast. All these railroads needed to cross bridges. They needed to cross rivers. They needed to move across whatever. The the old wooden bridges needed to be replaced so the heavy locomotives could go across steel bridges. It is, it's kind of a quaint thing to think about, but in today's day and age, you don't necessarily have the, you know, Massachusetts Bridge Company or the uh, Chicago Bridge Company. But back then they did, and a lot of them, again, were spun off from the railroads themselves. So as he goes to work for the Kentucky and Indiana Bridge Company, He's testing and inspecting iron from the Pittsburgh mills, and he is becoming known as an expert nationally in steel. And one of the things that Ferris was was so brilliant about was understanding the need for quality control. So Ferris would be at the mills looking at this stuff, and he understood very early on in the 1800s that before it was even called quality control, that quality control would be an essential element to any sort of successful enterprise, making sure the stuff was good before it left the mill to come to the job site, heading off any problems at the pass. It was a fairly progressive outlook at that point in history where previously you just trusted everything that came out of the mill and bolted it together, and there were famously a fair amount of bridge failures in the 1800s because eh, the stuff wasn't always what they said it was. George Washington Gale Ferris made sure it was exactly what they said it was before it left the mill and it absolutely changed not only the way bridges were built but it changed his kind of whole standing in the world of engineering the use of steel was absolutely exploding and at this point in 1885 the very first skyscraper in america was built the home insurance company building was constructed in chicago and it was at that point george washington gail ferris had an absolute 100 percent aha moment This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. 
Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO. That's J-E-R-K-O for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. They care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off. And that aha moment was the realization of how big steel was about to become in construction. It was going to become a massive wave. This one building built in Chicago was going to serve as kind of a scion for every skyscraper that has been built since then. That is that is that home insurance building is the the progenitor of all skyscrapers that have been built in this country. Understanding that in 1886 he opens the George Washington Gale Ferris and Company consulting and inspecting engineers firm in Pittsburgh. Hires a team of engineers and he is sending these engineers to different steel mills. He is sending them to different projects. He's consulting on engineering projects including building construction and bridge construction and the business literally explodes he opens offices in philadelphia new york city chicago and of course his home office in pittsburgh you have an office in pittsburgh because that's where the steel mills are and all these other major cities are expanding at such a rapid rate you open these satellite offices to oversee different projects and get jobs in 1887 he makes a hire as he had made so many times hires a young guy from rpi named William Gronau, and Gronau is a young guy, does not have a lot of experience, and he just comes off the right way to Ferris. He is smart, he is young, he is an RPI grad, and as we are learning rapidly in this story, uh, networking is not something that has been invented in the year 2023. It is something that has existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, graduate from the right college, have the right friends, and you end up getting hired. In the case of Gronau, he's a brilliant man who will factor into this story in a much larger way in just a few minutes. But by the late 1880s, uh, Ferris is the leading kind of national engineer um, in many ways on bridge projects. He is hugely successful within his field. He is not known you know, as a celebrity in, in people's homes, but in terms of the engineering circles, he's a part of the right different societies. He's a part of the right different groups. He has the ear of the major names and movers and shakers in the business, and he is making money hand over fist. So much money that in 1889, he forms another company called Ferris Kaufman and Company with his old friend Gus Kaufman to design and build their own bridges. So rather than being consultants on other people's projects they're going to chase the projects themselves and they do in fact get contracts and they design and build large bridges simultaneously they take on contracts in pittsburgh west virginia and ohio to basically build bridges simultaneously in those three cities and it is that 1889 period where things begin to happen outside of Ferris's realm that will ultimately cause his great fame and then his great collapse in life. So we can look at a couple of different points of this story to say that, that oh, this is the greatest part of George Washington Gale Ferris's life, or this is the moment he peaks, or this is the moment it all goes over center. I don't think we're quite there yet. He's still a man on the rise, still a guy who has something to prove, still a guy who has business and cash flow kind of to a degree that he might have never expected the one thing that happens outside of his purview in 1890 is that the united states government awards the city of chicago the honor of hosting 
the Columbian Exhibition, which will be the World's Fair of 1893, celebrating the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus, quote-unquote, discovering the New World. And so Chicago, which is, which is kind of an underdog in this story because New York wanted it, some of the other East Coast cities wanted it, and Chicago at this point in history was not exactly you know, seen as a premier city. It was, it was fighting for its reputation. And so in 1890, the government is, is uh, kind of votes and decides to, to put the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. A guy named Daniel Burnham is placed in charge of the whole thing. And Burnham is recognized widely as the greatest architect in America. He has designed some of the most iconic buildings. He is kind of a man who has his own gravitational pull around him. A larger-than-life figure that has been put in place to lead a larger-than-life project. And, you know, we could do an entire show on the World's Fair of 1893. There is gazillions of stories to tell both in and out about that fair and of course I in the research project of of doing this particular show I've read as much as I care to about that particular event and it is really amazing what was done what was created for the short time it lived for and we're going to get into some of those specifics in just a few minutes but understand that in 1890 maybe George Washington Gale Ferris opened a newspaper and saw that Chicago had been awarded the World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition. He did not know in 1890 what that would bring to him. What he did know was that he had a lot of work to do. And one of the bridges that he needed to finish was the Ninth Street Bridge, which opened in 1890. So this was during a, a period where he had a family member pass, so he had gone back out west to mourn the passing of his family member. He gets back out to watch back east to watch the Ninth Street Bridge open basically just in time and it's one of the proudest moments of his life because this Ninth Street Bridge was a beautiful structure it came in on time they met all the requirements he is there to see the very first trains pass over it and this Ninth Street Bridge was built in Pittsburgh he still had his Ohio project ongoing he had his West Virginia project ongoing and both of those were running a little bit behind schedule so what do you do when stuff's kind of getting stressed out, but you want to celebrate a win? You take a little time off. And so what he decided to do was take some time off and go to a very popular tourist destination at that time in American history. And that was a place called Atlantic City. When he was in Atlantic City, what do you think he decided to do? He probably decided to check out the boardwalk and see what was going on down there. Well, over the course of him being on the boardwalk, George Washington Gale Ferris decided to take a ride on William Summers' observation wheel. And the only reason we really know this is because of the lawsuit that was filed in 1893. But in his testimony, it was George Washington Gale Ferris that said these words exactly. These are taken exactly from the testimony of his trial. Quote, I was in Atlantic City about one week in September during the barring panic the 1890 collapse of the Barring Brothers Investment Bank firm in London, a major underwriter of U.S. railroad and bridge projects. I saw on the beach a vertically revolving wheel, which I supposed to be 40 or 50 feet in diameter. I rode the wheel in the company of some small children once. I don't know if this wheel will be in the summer's patent wheel. In fact, I paid so little attention to it that I don't even recollect how the thing was propelled. It attracted so little attention in my mind at the time that I didn't care to take the second ride on the wheel. 
At the time, I was not interested in any vertical roundabout or vertical swing device. I was in Atlantic City trying to recuperate. Depositions from the Garden City Observation Wheel Company patent infringement lawsuit beginning on July 10, 1893, U.S. Circuit Court, Northern District of Illinois, Case 22941, unquote. And so in my early research for this show, I immediately decided that I was just that, that this guy had stolen the idea. He rode the wheel and he was going to steal this idea. I can't really think about that going forward, only because Summer's wheel was such a quaint device. It was made out of wood. It was 50 feet in diameter. It was a compression-style wheel, not of the tension style that we'll talk about when we get to Ferris designing his own. But just the fact that he rode one of these things, to me, in the long-term out view of this story, when we continue to tell it, doesn't necessarily mean that he sat there and sketched something in his pocket and said, someday I'm going to build one of these things. Obviously, they had proliferated around the country. Uh, by this point in history, we talked about the fact that they had been in the United States uh, since since the early 1800s, and now they have grown you know, in, in popularity around the country. So it is an interesting thing that he wrote it, and certainly, as you will find out, that testimony cost him um, very, very much money, if not his own life, by the time we get to the end of this thing. But he was there. And the summer's wheel did carry passengers in kind of an open-air park bench-style seat. Everybody faced in the same direction, but he did ride it. And to his credit, he admitted that he wrote it. So we now move into the 1891 time frame. His Ohio and West Virginia bridges are completed. And during one of those bridges, bridge jobs, I will say, he met a man named Luther V. Rice, and Rice was a surveyor and engineer on the project, and he made an impression on Ferris for whatever reason, maybe for his fastidious work or his ability to kind of manage the project, but Luther V. Rice made an impression on George Washington Gale Ferris, which, as you'll understand, um, will turn out to be a very important impression that he made. Now, in 1890, the Chicago office of George Washington Gale Ferris and company, uh, you know, inspection engineers was flooded with work because they had gotten the contract to inspect all the steel that was going to be used to construct the buildings at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. And these are not small buildings. When we talk about a World's Fair in the 1800s, this was the construction of a literal city, um, about one square mile of buildings that were massive, and every time somebody had one of these things, no matter what country it was in, they tried to outdo the country before them. So the buildings were more grand, and the structures were more wild, and the architecture was more dramatic, and the things they were trying to do with the architecture would push the bounds of what was the known technology of the day. So this was a huge job. So big, in fact, that Ferris bought a house in Chicago. He was actually going to spend so much time there that uh, he was going to effectively live in Chicago for the next year plus because that was kind of where the brunt of the work would be. And again, this is a testament to the fact that the guy is at the top of his profession, if not a household name, inside the engineering world. They know him and they love him. And this is where the story becomes really supercharged and where we get into the meat of what we're going to talk about in terms of the brilliance of George Washington Gale Ferris and how he is able to turn a seemingly impossible situation to his own will. Early in 1891, the engineers and the architects from the World's Exposition form what is known as a Saturday afternoon club to get together. 
And these are not the, the guys that are on the ground doing the work. These are the big wheels. And these guys have this meeting, and every Saturday afternoon they get together and they talk about their progress. They talk about the things they're working on, the kind of dreams and aspirations they have, and what they're trying to achieve. So one day they decide to invite Daniel Burnham to the Saturday afternoon club. And they thought this was going to be great because he would give them an update on the construction of the exposition. He would talk about all the great achievements that are going on. And it really kind of backfired on at least one half of the group because Burnham shows up and he heaps praise on the architects for all the work they've done and the innovations they've created and the look they've achieved and what how dramatic it will all be. And then he straight up attacked the engineering group. He said, and I quote, the engineers had contributed little to nothing either in the way of originating novel features or of showing the possibilities of modern engineering practice in America. Slap in the face. He said, the, eng- the architects are killing it over here and you guys aren't doing anything. And it was at this meeting that Ferris kind of vows to himself to do something. And there were massive, massive... Um, how should we say roadblocks involved in this this whole quest because there was no budget for an engineering project the world's fair committee wanted something that would top the eiffel tower which was the chief attraction of the world's fair previous world's fair in paris and of course the idea of this columbian exposition is to showcase america's great prowess in all things and to show the world that this was a nation on the rise and that we could beat or meet anybody across the you know across the globe and so when the eiffel tower is built and it's this near 900 foot structure it's it's incredible and so we need something that's going to be better than that and there are people that kind of deride this idea or laugh at it but the i the the reality of 1890 and 1893 is that countries were still competing to be the leaders of the modern world I think a lot of people miss that fact. When we live in 2023, everything just seems like it's, you know, kind of set in stone. But back then, it was the idea of who's going to be the leader in automobiles, who's going to be the leader in airplanes, who's going to be the leader in steel, who's going to be the leader in engineering. And so these World's Fairs were a a literal way to show the world that you could do something spectacular that nobody else had done before. And so when you want that... And you come to the engineers and you attack them and you say, you guys haven't done anything to help us. And then you also say, oh, by the way, there's no budget and you have to figure this out yourself. Um, It is not the most incentivizing thing in the world. That being said, the gumption of the American engineers kind of shows through. So you're going to have to come up with something to win this concession that's self kind of totally self-funded. And, you know, in the the era that we're talking about in the 1890s it was a huge risk but there was also a potential huge reward if you came up with the right thing because you would effectively own it the fair was going to take some of your money but this would be a private enterprise and you would be able to make a pile of money if you created something that a lot of people wanted to visit and so there was little interest because most of the engineers were not entrepreneurs They wanted to design something that somebody else would pay for to build, and then that would be the end of that. So it it required this interesting mix of brilliance, both on the engineering side and brilliance on the entrepreneurial side. And as it turns out, uh, there was one guy that had that. 
Now, Burnham did challenge the guys at this meeting to do something to surpass the Eiffel Tower and show off the kind of technology and brilliance of America. And that's all well and good to say, especially if you're not going to put any, you know, put any kind of money in the, you know, money in the till. But um, it is it is a call that a few specific people answered. Quoting from the book Circles in the Sky, The Life and Times of George Ferris, I quote, Before the Saturday Afternoon Club meeting was over, Burnham threw out a piercing challenge to every engineer in the country, not just those present. He challenged American engineers to build something that would surpass the Eiffel Tower, something that would engage the public spirit and symbolize the exposition's desire to emphasize new technology. He said some distinctive feature is needed, something to take a relative position in the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition that was filled by the Eiffel Tower at the Paris Exposition. But he stressed that the exposition committee was not interested in a tower, even if considerably taller than Eiffel's. The French had already built a tower. Towers were not original, said Burnham. Something novel, original, daring, and unique must be designed and built if American engineers are to retain their prestige and standing. In his remarks, Burnham failed to mention that for the Paris event, Eiffel had received considerable public funding and was given three years to build the structure. Several people had submitted tall structural proposals to Burnham's committee, but none were accepted. Not even one by Eiffel himself to build a tower several hundred feet taller than his 984-foot tower in Paris. When America's leading engineers heard of Eiffel's proposal, they were outraged that it would be even considered. They joined forces and sent a strong letter to the fair officials. The Chicago Fair was a U.S. event, therefore American, not French engineering, should be highlighted. They, however, had nothing better to offer. To continue the quotation from the book, Among those who had submitted a taller-than-Eiffel Tower proposal was one of America's most prominent civil engineers, George S. Morrison. He organized a group called the American Tower Company, which included notables like himself and Andrew Carnegie and Carnegie's Keystone Bridge Company. He indicated his team could build a structural steel tower to the height of 1,120 feet, at a cost of $1.5 million, on time for the exposition. Unfortunately, Morrison's tower did not look significantly different than the existing Eiffel Tower, and it appeared to be just a refined copy of it, something the exposition committee violently opposed. To replicate what French engineers had already done would not show the world that the United States had become a world-class, technologically advanced nation. In his tower proposal, Morrison estimated that 75,000 people a day would go up the tower while the fair was open, yielding a total revenue on the order of $4 million. After an early show of interest, it was clear, however, that Morrison and his group could not finance the project. The project died on the drawing board, and if it had not, it would have been a dismal failure financially, since often fewer than 75,000 people a day frequented the fair itself. Typically, only 10% of all attendees could be expected to pay extra money to experience a tower. As an illustration, the Ferris wheel, the biggest attraction of the Chicago event, averaged about 10,000 paying customers a day during its operation. Even on Chicago Day, the exposition's busiest day by far, just 34,433 people paid to ride the wheel. Morrison's team would have been hard-pressed to get back half of the $1.5 million in construction cost, forgetting about the operating expense and splitting profits with the exposition committee. And so this, this whole thing was kind of a dismal deal where Burnham was actually giving up hope that they would have anything and that this fair was going to be kind of an also-ran and the nation would be kind of shamed in the face of Paris. The Europeans would once again be able to kind of mock America that we didn't have the technology or... Uh, the wherewithal to actually build something that could match them. And the fact that there was absolutely no seed money to do this made it even harder on everybody. 
enter our hero, George Washington Gale Ferris, because he said that the comments Burnham made at that meeting cut him to the quick, quoting circles in the sky. And I quote, Right after the pivotal Burnham luncheon, George Ferris immediately began casting several things over in his mind. One at a dinner in the company of a small group of friends, the idea of a great observation wheel came to him like an inspiration. He rapidly sketched his plans in the rough. The inspiration of the moment was a stroke of genius. The original sketch was so perfect that it was carried out in its entirety. Not a single change was made. Luther V. Rice, 1901. To go back and quote the book, The Illustrated History of Ferris Wheels by Norman Anderson, this is the more long-form version of that same story, and it is known as the Chop Dinner Story. Quote, and these are words spoken or written by Ferris himself. From a chop dinner, I had been turning over every proposition I could think of. Of four or five of these, I had spent considerable time. What were they? Well, perhaps I'd better not say. Anyway, none of them were satisfactory. We used to have a Saturday afternoon club chiefly at the Engineers of the World's Fair. It was at one of those dinners down in Chicago in a Chicago chop house that I hit on the idea. I remember remarking that I would build a wheel, a monster. I got some paper and began to stretch it out. I fixed the size, determined the construction, the number of cars we would run, the number of people it would hold, what we would charge, the plan of stopping six times in the first revolution and loading, and then making a complete turn. In short, before the dinner was over, I had sketched out in almost entire detail my plan, and it has never varied an item from that day. The wheel stands in the placence at this moment as it stood before me then at the chop dinner. You know, Ferris was never shy about the media. He understood that a good story would take him a long way and help to kind of build his own legacy and or legend. So the idea that he would straight face tell people that he wrote this down on a napkin and no engineering element of it altered or changed from the time it was conceived to when it was built certainly does play into the fact that, um, you know, he wanted to be the smartest guy in the room. And it's a good story. It just doesn't necessarily line up to what the facts are. Now, one of the things we can talk about is the fact that he was not even the first guy to propose a wheel at the 1893 Columbian Exhibition. In September of 1891, a guy named H.W. Fowler from Chicago, who was an inventor, uh, an industrialist, held dozens of patents, uh, he actually proposed a pleasure wheel 250 feet tall. Now, the big difference between the one that he wanted to build and the one that Ferris wanted to build was that Fowler's was shaped like a windmill. So there was the wheel was kind of what, what would be the, the fan blades, if you will, on a windmill, kind of cantilevered off the side. And it would only carry um, 16 you know carriages, a much, much smaller number of passengers than would be carried on the wheel that Ferris was proposing. And it was rejected. Uh, September 1st of 1891, he wrote to the World's Fair, uh, kind of outlining the idea and, you know, kind of pitching this on the fact that it was as, as, as over the top and as grandiose as the Eiffel Tower. And nine days after that, so September 10th, 1891, this is a letter written by Sam Crawford, Secretary of the Ways and Means Committee of the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. It reads, I quote, Your proposal for a Dutch windmill and wheel swing in connection therewith was submitted to the above committee at its regular meeting held in the 8th, and in their reply thereto, I am instructed to inform you that it is the opinion of the committee at the present time that nothing of the kind will be permitted within the grounds of the exposition. Should they find it necessary to recede from this position, thus taken, you will be so informed. And so, 
they rejected his idea, and, and this was not a very well sussed out idea. And again, as I mentioned before, there was no money to pay for this, so whoever was going to build it was also responsible for carrying the ticket on its construction. And once again, we can talk about the fact that well, this wasn't uh, not even not even the first wheel. There's more wheels that are being proposed um, to the fair committee. And they are being uh, kind of rejected in kind, as one would expect. This is the 28th of July, 1892, a story from the Boston Post. And this is uh, datelined Washington, July 27th. Title is, A Novel Ride to Go 220 Feet High on the Rim of a Wheel Will Be at the World's Fair. Its inventor explains it's working and says it will only cost $24,000. W.H. Watcher, an inventor of Brinkley, Arkansas, has invented a monster observation wheel and has his application for permission to use it at the World's Fair before the committees of ways and means to be considered. He promises that it will be a big success and says that he proposes to wheel people 220 feet in the air in swinging baskets and then wheel them down again. Mr. Wesher says the wheel will revolve between two steel truss towers 110 feet from the ground. There will be 28 upholstered baskets which are to swing on two pivots in each basket to accommodate eight persons. A round trip will be made in these baskets in 15 minutes. Another feature of the wheel will be the opera glass to be supplied to the riders while en route. This will give the occupants an opportunity to take in a wide reach of the country. There is to be a spoke in the wheel for each state in the United States. The entire cost of the plant will now be $24,000, including the mode of power, which is to be electricity. Mr. Watcher says it's is anxious to be given an opportunity to use the wheel at the World's Fair, and he promises, if given the privilege to the management, a big percentage of his profits. He says that after carefully calculating the strength of the wheel, which weighs 100,000 pounds, it will stand a wind stress of 84,000 pounds to the square inch. Once again, this from the Boston Post of Boston, Massachusetts, July 28, 1892. Everything about Mr. Watcher's idea was either completely fabricated or wrong. He was wrong about the weight. He was wrong about the mode of power. He was wrong about how much it would cost to build. He was wrong about how many people it would carry to be profitable. And this is why the wheels were being rejected pretty much out of hand by the people on the Ways and Means Committee. They also thought it was reasonably lowbrow and doesn't kind of fit the image of the Columbian exhibition. And so time is ticking away. And I read you that story that's from July of 1892. Remember, the fair is set to open in basically mid-1893. And so kind of with this time frame that continues to shrink, a little bit more doom and gloom and kind of panic begins to set in because of the fact that even if they do approve something at this point, who's going to build it and how's it going to get built? Well, Ferris is obsessed. And Ferris goes home from this this famed chop house dinner and he goes to his engineering firm and I mentioned William Gronau we talked about him earlier the young man in his 20s that was hired by Ferris who just saw something in him and he went to Gronau and put this project in his in his lap and basically put Gronau on as the lead engineer to execute the idea of this wheel that Ferris has had to quote circles in the sky Richard Weingart writes, Returning to his home at Pittsburgh first, then going to his office, Ferris called in one of his youngest partners, William Gronau, and outlined his grand vision. At that meeting, Gronau recalled, quote, Mr. Ferris unfolded his scheme of building a monster steel wheel, 
250 feet in diameter and to be constructed like a bicycle wheel. The vast magnitude of this wheel and its purpose of carrying people admitted of no hasty decision as the idea of being practical. Nothing of the kind had ever been attempted before. As fascinated as members of his office became over Ferris's history-making wheel project, none matched the excitement and pride exhibited by his wife Margaret. Said Gronau, when the wheel made its first revolution, the first person to congratulate me for his work on the project was Mrs. Ferris, who really went through almost the same mental strain as myself, for she had the success of the wheel very much at heart. One of the things that Ferris was so good at was kind of rallying the troops and being... Um, he was not a dynamic man in the pound on the desk, you know, jump and scream and yell type of way. He was a dynamic man in the far and the fact that he was so smart and successful, people wanted to, uh, you know, kind of have a piece of the action. So let's quote William Gronau again at this moment. Now, this is from the book Ferris Wheels and Illustrated History by Norman Anderson. And Gronau writes about the process of actually engineering this wheel. He writes, the first step was to discover a method of calculating the stresses developed in the various parts of the wheel. I had no precedent, and the calculation of the stresses was on original research. Method after method was tried and abandoned after nearly three weeks of hard thought. I hit upon the method, which after careful study and taking into consideration all manner of possible loading of the wheel, I adopted. The second step was to divide the crown of the wheel into proper segments. 36 was the number I decided upon, and the carriages were made large enough to accommodate 60 people. I thus doubled the capacity Mr. Ferris suggested. The plans now were started in earnest, but many obstacles were encountered. Frequently, I was discouraged and ready to give up. But through the encouragement of Mr. Ferris, work was always resumed, and finally I finished the work, and the wheels that stands today was made from these plans. The difficulties encountered may be easily imagined when it is known that I had to bear constantly in mind the easy erection of the material and use such various shapes and sections of material that would admit of ready sale to some bridge company in the case it has decided to dispose of the wheel after its work at the fair had been accomplished. Too much credit cannot be given to my assistant, Edward Godfrey, and my draftsman, Paul Sauer, for valuable assistance rendered to me. The machinery and turning gear were designed by Samuel Deischer of Pittsburgh, with Julian Kennedy as a consulting engineer. Much credit is due to Mr. Ferris for valuable information offered in the design of the turning gear and machinery. For obtaining the concession from the World's Fair Management and from successfully managing the financial end of the wheel. To me, this statement is really, really cool because it reveals a couple of things. First off, it reveals that it was Gronau that really did the nuts and bolts work on this project to get it to come to life. He was the one that literally did the math to make it function and uh, hopefully, as they assumed, to work properly, which in history shows us it did. It was a concept that was that was come to by Ferris, but it was the work of Gronau that made it a real thing. And then there's that other element. He talked about his draftsmen and he talked about the uh, other guys he worked with. Gronau was a, a very well-respected guy because of these things. He went on to have a long career and he was never a guy that took too much credit for himself, was always very deferential uh, about the people he worked with. So, Gronau's working on the wheel. Ferris needs to sell the wheel. He needs to first even have the Columbian Ex Exhibition allow it. Remember, at this point in time, he has not even gotten the agreement that they can have it at the fair. Um, and it is less than a year away that the fair is going to start. They have no better ideas. And so, Ferris does what he does best in his life, and he goes around and beats the bushes and 
effectively sells this idea to a lot of people and he gets a lot of people to give him commitments that they'll help financially or they'll invest or they'll do this, that, or the other thing um, to kind of get them going. And so once again, I quote from Ferris Wheels and Illustrated History by Norman Anderson. Quote, Ferris apparently was not deterred by skepticism on the part of the exhibition officials and many of his fellow engineers. In June of 1892, he obtained a concession from the board of directors from the exhibition, only to have it revoked the next day. They gave it to him, and then the next day they canceled it. And so, continuing with the quote, his efforts to arrange financing were more successful. On June 9, 1892, papers were filed for the incorporation of the Ferris Wheel Company. Capitalized at $600,000, the purpose of the company was to own, erect, construct, manufacture, lease, sell, and operate bicycle wheels of the Ferris or other type for the purpose of observation or amusement. You know, you had your kind of people that bought, bought in. This is an idea they're buying into. And clearly... This idea by the, the words I just read you was not to build a single one of these, but apparently to build one and then build a lot of them. Continuing with the book, the summer and fall of 1892 must have been one of the busiest times of George Ferris's life. A senior partner in two major companies, he had to devote time and energy to their management. Overseeing the design work on the wheel also demanded his attention. Although Ferris, the Ferris Wheel Company had been incorporated, most of the 6,000 shares of $100 stock still had to be sold. And without a concession, all of this investment in time and money would be lost. Ferris remained optimistic, which is the true sign of an entrepreneur. On November 14, 1892, papers of incorporation were filed for the Pittsburgh Construction Company. The purpose stated on the incorporation papers was to build, construct, erect, or manufacture bridges and buildings, and to do a general contracting and building business. The real purpose of the company was to build the Ferris wheel if a concession was obtained. Those signing the Articles of Incorporation were Adam Goodwich, William Vincent, Hamilton Anderson, Ferris, Goodwich, and Vincent were the first directors, and of the $10,000 put up at the time of incorporation, Ferris contributed $9,800 of it. Shortly after Thanksgiving of 1892, officials of the World's Columbian Exhibition and Ferris reached an agreement allowing him to erect and operate a, quote, revolving wheel, 250 feet in diameter, and capable of carrying 2,160 people per trip. The agreement specified that the erection would be on the Midway Plaisance and that a powerhouse located outside the grounds providing permission could be obtained to place a steam pipe and electrical lines under 60th Street. The, in addition to outlining the distribution of revenues, the agreement specified that the wheel should be ready for the use and operation on or before the first day of April 1893. Furthermore, the rate of fare that shall be charged for a ride upon said wheel should not exceed 50 cents per person, and the ride should not exceed two round trips. Ferris also agreed to the provision that within 60 days after the close of the World's Columbian Exposition, he would remove the wheel and the accompanying plant. The remainder of the agreement covered the legal obligation of the two parties and required Ferris to post a bond of 25000 a deposit of 10000 which would be returned, and at least $20,000 had to be spent on the concession by April 1st of 1893. With only five months before the fair opened, could it be done? Of course, 1893 was not a time of environmental impact statements, OSHA regulations, and union contracts, nor were the permits required from dozens of competing city, country, county, state, and federal agencies. Even so, what was to happen next is perhaps the most miraculous tale of the wheel itself. 
This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO. That's J-E-R-K-O for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. They care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off. So with the agreement in place following Thanksgiving of 1892, believe it or not, the final paperwork didn't get signed until December of 1892 after all the negotiating was kind of finished regarding the financial end of things. And so the bottom line is December 16th of 1892, it is 100% signed, sealed, and delivered. He has the concession. The fair opens now in four months. It is one of the roughest winters to ever see the the cold area known as Chicago in December. And oh, by the way, the United States is rapidly hurtling toward a depression of pretty nasty size and circumstance where banks will be going uh, bankrupt. Um, There'll be very hard financial times coming. That being said, he does manage to find uh, $400,000 of capital to get this thing actually going. Remember the guy he thought he was going to build a wheel for 24,000 bucks. That guy was out to lunch. So $400,000 is what he's able to find, which is, you know, uh, the, the, the base money that's going to get him started. And the money is relatively slow coming in. There's one problem. The second problem is that they have to engineer this wheel. They have to locate the mills to make the stuff. They have to have the parts and pieces fabricated. Then they have to have it built. Then there are the massive concrete foundations we're going to talk about. Then there are other steam engines needed to power it. And you have four months. So in 1892 to 1893, almost all of the shops that we can talk about in the United States, whether we're talking about mills or foundries, were running at max capacity. As I talked about earlier in the show, the country's appetite for steel had exploded. And so that placed absolute 100% overload on any and all capacity. But there was a wild card here, and that was Ferris himself. Remember, his job had been to be a liaison between construction companies and the steel mills, and so he knew everybody at every mill. Quoting from Illustrated History of Ferris Wheels by Norman Anderson, In December of 1892, the orders went out. The main structure of the wheel was to be fabricated by the Detroit Bridge and Ironworks from mild steel supplied by Jones and Laughlin. The cast sprocket plates are to be furnished by the Walker Manufacturing Company of Cleveland. The Keystone Bridge Company of Pittsburgh was asked to provide the two drive chains. A pair of steam engines, each capable of producing a 1,000 horsepower, were supplied by William Todd and Company of Youngstown, Ohio. The axle, the largest piece of steel that had ever been made in the United States, was to be forged by the Bethlehem Iron Company of South Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Numerous smaller companies supplied miscellaneous parts or did some of the machine work. F.J. McCain and brothers were given the contract for erecting the wheel. Robert Hunt and company, including many of the staff who once worked for Ferris, were to be in charge of inspections during the wheel's construction. Arrangements called for the Hunt company to also assist in the operation of the wheel during the exposition. So the work that was getting the steel ready, 
the other side of this is now going to be uh, you need an, you need to do all the concrete work and the site work to have this thing um, to have a base or a foundation put on. And so in December of 1892, and December 12th actually, Ferris wrote to Luther Rice. Remember, he was the engineer on the bridge project that had impressed Ferris. So he writes to Rice, and at the time, Rice was working as the assistant engineer of the Union Depot and Tunnel Company in St. Louis. But he basically went through what he needed in the job in this letter, saying he needed a construction superintendent, he needed somebody to actually operate the wheel as a business manager once it started, and the, the sales pitch, and he also needed somebody to help take it down once they were done. And the sales pitch was, quote, I can certainly offer you employment for at least a year in this capacity and possibly longer if you desire it. And Rice was absolutely 100% interested. He got the letter and within three days had written back um, and wanted the job. He was invited to Chicago for an interview. He accepted the job on the spot, and Rice would turn out to be um, a guy who was absolutely brilliant in his capacity and someone who was involved with the Ferris wheel for longer than anybody involved with the Ferris wheel would be. He was a, a great engineer, and uh, on January 7th of 1893, a certificate got filed that increased the uh, the business directors of the board for the Ferris wheel company because of the n- amount of money people were throwing in there. who's adding and expanding board members. But the construction of the foundations for the Ferris wheel began in early January. And this is where I really want to start talking about the nuts and bolts of this project. Now that they're actually building it, we can really get into the size and scope of it. And it is like insane. I mentioned the fact that, and it sounds like I'm making it up, but it's true. Mentioned the fact that it can carry 2,160 people at the same time. I mean, we've all seen a Ferris wheel in the year 2023, it's not carrying 2,160 people at the same time. We've all ridden Ferris wheels typically. Many of us probably have been on a Ferris wheel taller than 250 feet. But at this time in the world, the tallest structure in the United States was about 350 feet tall, and that was the the insurance building that was built, that first skyscraper. And so this Ferris wheel is going to move and be nearly as tall as the tallest building in the entire country. So all of this stuff was a really kind of mind-boggling thing. But in January of 1893, the construction begins with the excavations for the massive foundations that will be made of concrete. And so there's going to be two concrete pillars that come up that the axle will sit on, and that's what the wheel will effectively be anchored by to the ground. It was so cold that the temperatures were well below freezing every day. The wintertime was just pure misery. And the ground was so frozen that they would pump live steam. They would, they would actually have a constant flow of hot live steam into the area being excavated to try and loosen the ground up so the guys could actually work and, and get them dug out. And as it so happens, this was uh, a functional method that worked. And against all the odds, they were able to get the foundations dug and they were able to get the concrete poured. As all this is happening, because of his pre-planning work, Ferris is, as I mentioned, contracted with all those different foundries and mills to have the different steelwork completed for the job. And so the Pullman Company has been hired to build the, um, I don't want to call them coaches, we can call them carriages, we can call them whatever you want to call them, the the actual units that the people will ride in. As you heard Gronau say earlier, 36 of them will be needed to seat the 60 people that they are designed to carry. 
And this was a fairly easy job for Pullman because basically all they were were streetcars. These were the same dimensions as a streetcar, which I think was done by design, if not by Gronau, by Ferris. And they were slightly modified because they had a big axle that ran through them that they would hang from and gently kind of swing in the breeze as you were going on your trip. But they had swivel chairs. They were done with, you know, velvet and, and all the nice kind of plush look of the time in the late 1890s. And um, they were done on time. There was no real drama in any of this kind of acquisition process. In today's world, we talked about in the book, talked about OSHA and permits and all the different things you'd have to go through to get this project done. But the speed that this is built with and the fact that it doesn't kill anybody in its operation is incredible. So the steam engines are being built, the concrete's being poured, the steel pieces are being made, and the carriages, or the chariots, however you want to call them, are being built by Pullman simultaneously. And Ferris is still on the hunt for money. Mentioned the fact that the engines, or the power for this, is going to come from two steam engines, each rated at 1,000 horsepower. And the reason there are two is simply because of the fact that there is a backup. Uh, they were not they were not run at the same time. They would be run in alternating format just to make sure there was always an engine uh, available in the event that one of them broke. So the way this thing worked was the the wheel, the Ferris wheel itself had a had a ring gear basically around the outside of it. So the the steam engine would turn a flywheel or turn a sprocket that had a massive massive chain, and you can actually see pictures of this online. So there was a huge chain drive. And that chain drive off of the steam engine would turn another would be hooked to another sprocket that would be attached to a gear, and that gear meshed up with the outside of the Ferris wheel. And the very perimeter of the wheel had a gear, and almost like the the way your starter motor works on your your car, it worked in that same fashion. Provided an incredibly smooth way to get things done. It had a gear ratio that was very low, so the thing moved gently and it moved. Um, you know, it didn't move in a herky-jerky fashion. And it also was very strong and reliable. The chains and the steam engines were wildly over-engineered for what they needed to be. To Ferris's credit, there was a lot of public fear about this wheel because it looked spindly. Uh, many engineers that didn't know any better said it was going to collapse and fall down and, and that was going to be the end of it. Uh, people thought the first time it turned, it would be... Um, you know, it would be wrecked. Uh, it would turn into an oval. They thought it would fall off the the stanchions it was going to be put on. They thought the axle would break. And the idea that this was actually going to be safe was, um, yeah, was actually not uh, not the, the closest thing to almost anybody's mind. But this is where Ferris's brilliance comes back again because he goes on um, kind of a pub publicity campaign to talk about it after it is approved. The renderings start to show up, the drawings start to show up, and the public becomes, you know, pretty interested in this new thing called the Ferris wheel. The most important person that Ferris had won over, of course, was Daniel Burnham, who was in charge of the entire exposition in terms of its construction, architecture, and everything. And famously, when he actually got the concession, it was a very contentious meeting. In fact, the kind of record of the meeting includes a an exchange between Burnham and Ferris where after looking once again at the design and the sketches and the, the math, Burnham looks at Ferris and says, quote, too fragile, your wheel is so flimsy it would collapse, and even if it didn't, the public would be too afraid to ride in it. 
Ferris apparently shoots back and says, you're an architect, sir. I'm an engineer. My wheel represents strict engineering problem solving. The spokes may seem flimsy, but they are more than strong enough. And then he got ready to leave, and he stopped, and he looked at Burnham, and he said, I feel that no man should prejudge another man's idea unless he knows what he's talking about. You're an engineer, or rather, you're an architect, and I'm an engineer. And there was a bit of a tense moment. Burnham finally said, let me have your documents, Mr. Ferris. I'll present them to the board and do my best to get a concession for the wheel. And, of course, that worked. They were out of ideas. They had nothing. This was the closest thing they had. And the most important thing Ferris did was he proved that he had the people in place. He proved that he had the suppliers in place. And most importantly, he proved that he had the money in place to at least get the thing built. And you have to imagine there was some thought process there among the board of the fair to like at least get it built. And if this guy goes broke in the process, maybe we can finish it and figure it out. But at least let's get something built. And that's what it was. So construction's going on in the winter of 1892. The steel's being, you know, basically milled and and cast and machined and all the all the other basic processes. And as all this is going on, Ferris is working on kind of the final math of what he's going to do to need um you know, effectively to be a, a profitable business here. 33-year-old entrepreneur uh, even in today's world, you get a lot of young, ambitious entrepreneurs that make big bets, and he made a very big bet. So, long story short, for what he owed before the wheel was even con- finished construction, Ferris knew he needed to make a minimum of $425,000 to break even. That is $14.3 million in today's money on a Ferris wheel that would be open for about six months. It's a huge amount of money, and Remember, with the deal that he had signed with the fair, the first three hundred thousand uh, bucks went to him, and then the hundred and twenty-five thousand would go to um, a split, basically, which would allow him a total of three hundred and sixty-two thousand five hundred bucks to cover his building expenses. Now, the exposition um, wanted to have their split as well, but their split would start beginning after Ferris had made his four twenty-five. So after the 425, the, 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 the fair, which was already collecting 50 cents for people to walk in the gate, would get 25 cents off of every 50 that was spent after the wheel was paid off. And so it, it was a big bet. I mean, this was the biggest, most expensive part of the entire fair, which is saying something because they built a city in 1893 from scratch, and this was going to be the absolute centerpiece. And it was... Not going to be ready in time, because that's how things work. It wasn't going to be ready in time, not because of the fault of Ferris, not because of the fault of the mills, because even working as many hours a day as they did with the dozens and dozens of people they had, it was impossible to get this thing done by the time the fair opened in April. To quote Luther Rice from his 1901 memoir on digging the foundations for the concrete that was needed to be poured in the winter of 1893, he writes... Quote, the frost at the wheel site was three feet deep. The quicksand was the quicksand was twenty feet in depth and saturated with water. All this had to be excavated and a solid concrete monolith interspread with steel beams resting on piles driven through blue clay into hard pan thirty two feet from the surface was built to get a secure foundation for the towers. Pumps were kept running day and night to keep out the water, and live steam had to be used to thaw the sand and broken stone. That work was completed by March. 
And that is good because it was in March when the steel began to arrive on the rail cars. The power plants were being built also in that time frame. So no, the wheel would not open when the fair opened, but the wheel would open not that far after it, they hoped. Now they had to build this thing. And building this wheel was something that, again, was the largest project of its type ever created. The steam engines were pretty simple, straightforward things. The entire world pretty much ran on steam. But the assembling part of this were, the assembly part of this steel was going to be the big challenge. And after the foundation was done, the support towers were starting to be erected. Now, these support towers were basically, um, you know, giant wooden scaffolding. And they were built up side by side next to the concrete work. Because the first thing that had to happen to build this wheel was that the center axle had to be lifted into place. And this center axle was the single largest steel forging, single steel forging that had ever been machined in the United States. It weighed something on the order of 70 tons, and it had to be raised 140 feet straight up in the air and sit on those two support towers. And then from that point forward, the wheel would be built off of that axle. It took him two hours. This is how awesome Luther Rice and his crew was. To raise that 70-ton axle, it took them two hours, and that was one of the most fearful parts of the job. Nobody got hurt, nobody got injured, and it went flawlessly. And from that point forward, actually constructing this behemoth went way smoother than anybody could have predicted. The whole thing bolted together like a giant erector set. And so it's 265 feet above the ground at peak uh, if you're riding it because of the differential of you know, the, the height of the towers and all that other stuff. The, the wheel itself is 250 feet in diameter, but it's slightly elevated because of the fact that, one, it can't sit on the ground, and two, um, this is just the way that uh, the way and size and scope they decided to build it. So I want to talk about, before we get into its grand opening and all the other stuff, the size and scope and weight of this wheel. Remember the guy who proposed the $24,000 wheel that was going to be almost as tall and weigh 100,000 pounds? Yeah, he missed it. Uh, this wheel... The wheel itself, without anything else on it, weighed 1.5 million pounds. That is only the wheel. The amount of stuff, I mean, there is actual incredible engineering documents um, that document pretty much everything regarding the construction of this thing. And, you know, when we talk about the, when we talk about the, um, the weight of this and the size of it, the 1.5 million is only the bare wheel. The concrete pillars that were built for this thing to sit on estimated to weigh 600,000 pounds apiece. And that includes all the concrete, that includes the reinforcing bar, those are those are massive pieces. So the 1.5 million pound wheel, remember it's going to carry those cars, those carriages with the people in it. The carriages themselves weigh 416,000 pounds in total. So we take a 1.5 million, hang 416,000 on it. So now we're getting up there. And oh, by the way, we have to start adding in like the structural materials and some of the other parts of the wheel, the reinforcing rods and stuff like that. The total weight of the material manufactured by Detroit Bridge and Ironworks and then adding in the weight of the cars, 2.6 million pounds. 
This thing in 1893 is a 2.6 million pound Ferris wheel that is 250 feet tall that is powered by a 1,000 horsepower steam engine. And we're in an era where, you know, there really isn't photography, so to speak. I guess daguerreotypes are around, but um, there really isn't any sort of mass media. There is illustrations and there is basically that. So people have no real idea what they're about to see. The very first day that the wheel turns, as you can imagine, high tension day. Things are completed. Things are ready to go. And this is Luther Rice and William Gronau's, Gronau's big moment. Who wasn't there? Ferris. Ferris did not attend the very first day that the wheel was tested. And we can we talked about before, like, the stresses that the guy was under and how he had this kind of weak constitution. To me, it speaks to all of that. I don't think he could bring himself to look at it. I think he uh, knew and had faith in it, but I don't think he had the guts to watch. So he sends Gronau there. And this, um, this is a, a day that they will never forget. And the fair is open already. Fair opens in in April. Uh, now we're talking about basically May when this is getting tested. And we're going to quote circles in the sky. To make the wheel's final structural inspection and witness its first revolution, Ferris sent his partner William Gronau from his Pittsburgh office to Chicago. Gronau had done most of the structural calculations and had overseen the preparation of the drawings for it. What a good experience for a young designer. In essence, Ferris's directive was, quote, go stand under the structure you designed and its supports, and when its supports are removed, if it stands up, fine. If not, well, back to the drawing board if you survive. It was a very trying moment for me, Gronau said, when the superintendent said everything was in readiness to start. I did not trust myself to speak, so merely nodded to get things going. Although I was very anxious to know how the results went, I would have gladly asserted to postpone the trial. The test was a resounding success. Rice informed Ferris that the wheel stayed perfectly round without any distortions and moved effortlessly and smoothly. On June 10th, Ferris wired back to Rice, Your telegram stating the first revolution of the wheel has been made last night at 6 o'clock at the same was successful in every way and has caused great joy for the entire company. I wish to congratulate you in all respects in this manner and ask that you rush putting in of cars working day and night. Now, it was spun with just a handful of the cars on it. They wanted to just make sure it was going to move. And the one thing that was reported at the time was that there was a big, huge groaning noise, and everyone thought it was going to fall over. And all that was was it used a Westinghouse air brake to stop the wheel, and when they applied the brake, there was some, some apparently some rust on the brake shoe um, that caused a vibration until the friction removed the rust. So 100% absolute flawless first test with a handful of the carriages or cars on it. So now they added six more cars. And as you heard in that telegram that Ferris sent, he asked the guys to work day and night to get the stuff hung on. They needed to get this open. The sooner they got it done, the sooner they started making money, the sooner they had a chance to make this massive investment back that they had put into the wheel. Margaret Ferris was there when they had the six cars hung, and she demanded she be in one of them to be among the first actual passengers on the wheel. So, and I quote again from Circles in the Sky, Next came a trial run with six passenger cabins installed. The wheel had not yet completely been adjusted, but Rice wished to make one trip around to see how the wheel would act with cabins attached. Mrs. Ferris, who had cheered her husband in the darkest of hours of the Enterprise, had given many words of encouragement to the men in charge of the construction work. She was present and bravely determined to make the first trip. She did not falter one moment, nor did she show one sign of fear while making that perilous trip. The trial run was made on a beautiful Sunday, June 11th. 
Joining Margaret Rice Gronow and a few other Ferris employees and the chief bridge engineer for the city of Chicago with his wife and daughter. The nervous Gronow, who had been anxious just watching the wheel turn without passengers a few days earlier, was soothed to be in the cabin with both Mrs. Ferris and Rice. Surely nothing bad could happen with them on board. However, as the wheel began to revolve, their cabin made a crunching noise. As it turned on its bearings, a sound not pleasant to hear, Gronow said. Earlier, Margaret had told her husband in Pittsburgh that she would wire him as soon as the ride was over, and he eagerly awaited the word. And she did send the word, and he was elated. And they finished up everything they needed to finish up very quickly, and they got the wheel open in June of 1893. As it would turn out, June 21st, 1893 would be likely the best single day in the life of George Ferris. The wheel opens. The 36 carriages are hung. There is incredible anticipation. There are dignitaries. There are everything you could want. Yeah, the fair has been open since April, but now the fair is really open because the wheel is done. How big a deal was this? Well, it was nationally reported, syndicated across hundreds of newspapers in the United States. This clip from the St. Joseph Gazette of St. Joseph, Missouri, 22 June of 1893. Title is up in the air. The Ferris Wheel of Iron and Steel attraction debuts at the exposition. Thousands of visitors enjoy an elevated ride on the Monster Circle. The great body of people sent skyward 250 feet. Dateline Chicago, June 21st. Midway Plaisance was a moving mass of humanity in the afternoon when the revolving creation of George Washington Gale Ferris of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania first started the 5,000 invited guests, and then for thousands of exhibition vi exposition visitors who had been patiently waiting to take a ride in the monster circle of steel and iron. It was a great day for the civil engineering profession in general, and the inventor Ferris in particular. Old Saul beamed on the inaugural ceremonies, and there was no hitch on the proceedings. Everybody among the 5,000 invited persons or more or less prominence was elevated slowly to a height of 250 feet, and by a gradual, indescribable motion, lowered through space to five platforms. Nobody was afraid to get on board of the 36 cars of 40 seats each, but some of the women and men experienced a disagreeable sensation in the motion of the wheel, which made them resolve not to go up and down again. Still, that was not the fault of the wheel, as the motion of the machinery is almost imperceptible. There is, however, a particularly novel lurching rise and fall combined with a forward motion which nobody has ever been accustomed to on land or water, simply because there is only one Ferris wheel in the world. Before the inaugural exercises began and while the guests were gathering inside the gates, the Iowa State Band, perched on t the topmost car of the wheel, high above the promenade on the roof of the manufacturer's building, and played patriotic and popular, uh, properly appropriate music to the occasion. The wheel revolved a few times to show the thousands watching it, with straining eyes, the motion and safety of it. Robert Hunt, the president of the Ferris Wheel Company and architect of the administrative building, led the way to the platform which had been erected under the wheel and acted as chairman. He was surrounded by George Washington Gale Ferris, Grice, Luther Grice, the assistant, which is actually supposed to be Rice, the assistant to the inventor, Chief Walker Fern of the North Foreign Affairs Department, General Nelson A. Miles, Sir Henry Wood of the British Commission, Judge Vincent, ex-Chief Justice of New Mexico, and on and on and on. President Hunt welcomed the guests on behalf of the directors. He said he had been connected with many engineering enterprises, but never before had he known such a gigantic piece of machinery to start so smoothly and absolutely without a hitch. As trustee of the Polytechnic School of New York, 
the oldest in the country, he considered it an honor to place among the illustrious names of the role that George Washington Gale Ferris, who had conquered his way to the place of fame he now occupied. Great applause followed the conclusion of the president's address. Three cheers with a tiger were given for Mr. Ferris, who sat in the background as modest as a maiden on commencement day. Mr. Ferris told at how an informal dinner in Chicago, he had conceived the idea while having an engineering profession represented at the fair in a striking manner, and planned the line of structural iron and steel. After months of hard work, he had roughed out the design of the wheel. The newspaper and press say many of his friends had accused him of having wheels in his head, but not on the ground. I leave it to you, ladies and gentlemen, said the genius, to say that if the wheel is still in my head, I dedicate this plant to the profession of which I belong. For the success wrought on the building of this wheel, I am indebted to the constant devotion and persistent encouragement of my wife, my assistant, and the superintendent of construction. Of course, there was applause and cigars and fun, and then there was thousands of people piling onto the wheel, and what began was effectively a national sensation. The stories absolutely would not stop. Uh, this from the Fall River Daily Herald of Fall River, Massachusetts of 8 July, 1893. Quote, the biggest wheel, revolving wonder at the World's Fair. It excites the curiosity of admiration of thousands of visitors, Oddfellows headquarters, the temperance camp delights of the Wooded Island. These are all stories about the exposition, but they are really centered around the wheel. Quote, the Ferris wheel is a big thing. It's 250 feet in diameter and weighs, when loaded, upward of 1,400 tons. But an engineering achievement, as an engineering achievement, it is a good deal bigger than its diameter and its weight. General Miles, who may be suspected of knowing something of such manner, says it dwarfs the seven wonders of the ancient world, and engineers who have studied both structures declare that it outranks the great Eiffel Tower of the Paris Exposition. It is the largest piece of movable machinery ever constructed, and the axle on which it turns is the largest single piece of steel ever forged, being 32 inches thick and 45 feet long. The principle of the wheel is by no means a new one, but it is an enlargement of a sort of merry-go-round that has afforded amusement to thousands since its unknown inventor constructed the first one at a time and place where of history has made no record, but has presented an engineering problem that has never been formulated before and whose successful solution has been placed the name of George Washington Gale Ferris. It has placed his name well upward toward the top of the list of the world's mechanical engineers. There are 36 cars in the wheel, each of them carrying 40 people. So that carrying capacity of the wheel is 1,440 persons. This is incorrect. It's actually 2,160. The actual rests on two pyramidal towers 140 feet high and 40 by 50 feet at the base. The motive power is furnished by 2,000 horsepower reversible steam engines, which will turn the wheel quite as fast as most people care to go. Though the two revolutions and the constant that constitute the trip are ordinarily made in 20 to 30 minutes. There is a large Westinghouse air brake by which the speed can be regulated and the machinery stopped entirely at a second's notice. Every possible precaution has been taken to guard against accident. The sensation of a first ride on the Great Wheel are novel and delightful. Scarcely any motion is perceptible to those within the cars. The earth seems to gradually recede and then is gradually to approach again as though it were undulated by a tremendous earthquake and the blue waters of the lake seem to be moving in a mighty tidal wave. The cloud of smoke that is usually covering Chicago is pierced by an occasional spire or a towering skyscraper stretching its way northwest and south just below the wheel. The white city glitters in the sunshine with a beauty all its own. A trip on the wheel is instructive as well as amusing. So 
this again is something no one's ever experienced before and the vast majority of human beings have never been 200 feet in the sky to do anything buildings weren't that tall no one is flying on airplanes give or take in a, in a mass population type of thing so this idea of being that high off the ground is something that is just foreign to so many people and it's a huge success it is um it is drawing people from all over the country the statistics on the Colombian Expo- Exposition of 1893 are astonishing. It has been said that nearly half the population of the United States actually visited this thing um, to see the various different attractions. The wheel carries more than a million people uh, over the course of the fair, which again lasts several months. It is not there for years and years. It, it, this is something that goes a few months and it carries over a million and a half people. Makes over 10,000 revolutions, has not a single recorded incident. And a theme develops here really the day after the wheel opens, um, or a few weeks after the wheel opens. But supposedly the day after the wheel opens, a man walks up to George Washington Gale Ferris and hands him a piece of paper. And that piece of paper is a court summons. And we go to July 26th of 1893 in the Chicago Tribune in this court note. Quote, the motion in Judge Grosscup's court by the Garden City Observation Wheel Company for a preliminary injunction to issue against the Ferris Wheel Company was denied. The suit was brought on to the grounds that the complainants hold patents controlling wheels of this nature. Proof will now be introduced at a further hearing. Here is where the life of George Washington Gale Ferris starts to head south. Brilliant guy. Has this has the wheel, has the attention of the nation, has the attention of his colleagues, and now has the attention of William Summers. Remember William Summers from Atlantic City, the guy who tried to burn the city down? Well, the Garden State Observation Wheel Company is an entity that bought his patent and was operating and manufacturing wooden observation wheels, those same basically 50-foot diameter jobbers I was talking about earlier. They had applied for a concession inside the midway of the Columbian Exposition and got denied. So they built their small wheel outside the gates of the place, and they were convinced that they had the patents on the wheel, and they did have a patent on on a wheel, and they were going to get money out of Ferris because he had effectively what he thought stolen his the they thought he had stolen the Summers patent. Obviously, he admitted to riding the Summers wheel when he was taking that break after the stressful bridge project to get his to get his life back together. And so there is some circumstantial evidence here that um, a dinner at a chop house in Chicago in 1892 wasn't exactly the uh, opening inspiration for his wheel. Now. The size and scope and manner of his wheel dwarfs anything that Summers had going on. But is it possible that a ride on Summers' wheel inspired this idea to do something far more grandiose and seemingly kind of more important? Ultimately, that is something the courts are going to have to decide. And this is a process, again, he was handed the papers the day after the wheel opened and he's in court in July. There was something very important that also happened in July that backed up on really so many, many cool elements of George Washington Gale Ferris's design. And that came on July 9th. And on July 9th, effectively, a tornado came. And um, basically, it was a huge thunderstorm that had, I guess, what we would now call a a downburst type of storm attached to it. 
And this was kind of the nightmare scenario for a lot of people, like to be in this wheel and then trapped in a tornado or a storm. And that's exactly what happened. And so to quote once again, Norman Anderson and Ferris Wheels and Illustrated History, quote, before Ferris could obtain a concession to build the wheel, he had to convince exposition officials that it would not topple over in the face of a gale force wind. Well, on Sunday, July 9th, a thunderstorm struck Chicago and several passengers were caught aboard the Ferris wheel. One passenger in a letter to Engineering News mentioned that it took, quote, the combined effort of two of us to close the doors tight. The wind blew so hard that the raindrops appeared to be flowing horizontally instead of vertically. There was a slight vibration. The wheel vibrated sideways, perhaps one and a half inches out of its normal position. The captive balloon that operated near the Ferris wheel did not fare as well. In the morning and early afternoon of July 9th, there was a little breeze, and on each trip the balloon went straight up to heights of 1,000 feet. Then about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the instruments used to denote the approach of stormy weather indicated a squall was coming. From a newspaper account, we know that Manager Morgan made a wise decision to pull the balloon in. Quote, at 5 o'clock the wind was blowing from the southwest, but it suddenly veered into the northwest and black, angry-looking clouds began to pile up in the northern sky. A few minutes later, there was a small funnel-shaped cloud drifting through the downtown toward the park. It came across the city to the buildings of the University of Chicago, and when it struck the high-broad fence at the fairgrounds, the balloon was in its path. It caught the bag at a firm embrace and tossed it about like an eggshell, upsetting the chains and tables and knocking people over, turning twice about in a limited area of its tethers, and then the wind seemed to tire of playing with it and gave it another twist, which brought it down full and fair in front of the park pavilion splitting the covering until the gas inside escaped and then drew down a mass of torn, twisted silk and cordage, a complete wreck. So it, it killed the observation balloon, but the Ferris wheel survived it perfectly. And Ferris knew it would. Uh, there's not a lot of structure there to, to be blown around, right? It's, it's a fairly, the fact that it is so spindly looking means that it doesn't have a lot of area to catch wind. But even in a, a storm like that, the robust construction of the wheel kept it from being uh, from any sort of a problem. And there are other kind of disasters at the fair. There were fires and things of that nature. But none of that stuff happened to the Ferris wheel itself. And it all just kept growing the pile of the, I should say, the profile of George Washington Gale Ferris to the point that I will now quote from the Hawaii Gazette of Honolulu, Hawaii, November 14th, 1893. And this is a profile on Ferris. Quote, he built the great wheel. Engineer Ferris tells why and how he did it. It was largely a matter of peak, said George Washington Gale Ferris, the inventor of the Great Wheel, talking about the origin of his big idea. I saw that the architects of the country were getting all the credit for the exposition, and I determined that the engineering profession should be represented by something that would stand as a monument. His determination was carried out, and the Ferris Wheel stands among the foremost mechanical achievements of the century. The engineering and problems encountered were novel and difficult, but the greatest of them was involved in the shortest time on the wheel, which must, which were to be, was to be completed to be remunerative in terms of its financial investment. It was the middle of last December before the preliminaries were settled and the foundations, which are 40 feet into the ground, had to be laid during the coldest weather of the winter. Live steam was freely used to keep the mixing concrete together and to keep it from freezing. The work of erecting the ironwork began around February 25th, and on June 21st, the inauguration ceremony took place. At the highest point, the wheel is 265 feet above the ground. The axle turns on the tops as two pyramidal towers 140 feet high, and there are 2,160 passengers on each full ride. 
The view from the top is superb, and the sensation of making the trip is novel and exhilarating. Mr. Ferris is not less interesting than his great wheel. He is a pale, quiet, and thoughtful-looking man, and at 33 years old, is at the head of one of the greatest civil engineering firms in the country. He was born in Illinois, but went to Nevada with his parents in a private schooner when he was only four years of age, locating first at Carson and then at Virginia City. He took his engineering course at Rensselaer Polytechnic School in Troy, New York, and for some time afterward engaged in railroad and bridge work, which gave him considerable reputation in the engineering world. Physically, he is tall and well-built, and his bearing is kindly and unassuming. That is one of the few personal profiles kind of looking into George Washington Gale Ferris. The wheel was was his life. The wheel was his signature, and the wheel was kind of what defined him. And so because of that, um, you don't hear a lot about his personality. Another very short profile from the Boston Globe, June 13th of 1894. George Washington Gale Ferris, inventor of the famed Ferris wheel that did so many good turns at the World's Fair, spends part of his time in Pittsburgh and the rest of New York. He is a frequenter of the Engineers Club, and he is deservedly popular for his modesty and good fellowship. The success, both from a professional and financial standpoint, of his daring experiment at Chicago has not given him the slightest touch of vanity. He is a young man, but his position is firmly established in the engineering circles of the world. His famous wheel was erected under tremendous difficulty, and the nervous strain endured by Mr. Ferris for a great many months would have wrecked a less robust man. Kind of funny in the regard that they are kind of speaking up his his strong constitution. We know that that is certainly not the actual case. And this, this lawsuit with the Garden City Observation Wheel Company is going to become a huge problem because it does not go away. And we talk about the the financial rewards of of this particular project and we talk about the fact that for 19 weeks the wheel was open for 19 weeks it carried passengers 1.5 million of them the peak day it's called chicago day 30,000 people rode the wheel in a single day 50 cents a ride at 1.5 million people gives us $750,000 in gross revenue and that is of course umpteen million and millions of dollars in today's money but then we have to start taking out the operating costs then we have to start taking out what we owe the fare for the concession value then we have to start taking out what we owe our stockholders and everything else and it does begin to get um a little bit smaller it's still it's fair still basically makes the equivalent of what we would call today about three million bucks when all was said and done and one of the things that um is so really interesting about this is despite the fact that ferris is involved in a patent lawsuit being sued by somebody else that is going to drag on for years he never patents anything of his own in terms of this particular ferris wheel he patents other things he develops pneumatically controlled locks for canals of course he gets that patented but the signature invention of his life the thing that ultimately will wreck his life he never gets a single patent on and he is as obsessed with it than absolutely anything else that he'll ever do and he does do other stuff but it is this wheel that has absolutely kind of owned his brain and he can't do anything about it and yet he does nothing to protect it And as George Ferris is going to learn, there is nobody out there to protect him either. July 10th, 
Ferris makes his first appearance to answer the charges that the Garden City Observation Wheel has brought against him regarding a violation of a patent that they owned. And again, it was the William Summers patent. And so basically over the course of this this early part of the deposition, uh, it came to light that Garden City had attempted to also get a concession like I mentioned. They opened their wheel outside and they made a couple of bucks, but they had absolutely not 10% of the revenues or fame or success that Ferris had with his wheel. And so basically Ferris's lawyers delineated in great detail how the Ferris wheel was different than a wooden Summers wheel. The Summers wheel had compressive spokes. The Ferris wheel was designed as a tension style wheel. And Ferris left this first hearing and thought that they had it in the bag. Um, and that was a very bad feeling to have because he was not even remotely close to quote the circles in the sky book before the lawsuit was over the inventive engineer would find out just how financially and personally damaging legal proceedings could be there is 400 pages of documents regarding the uh you know the ferris wheel lawsuit it just goes on and on and on and the reason that it goes on and on and on is because it dragged on for years and years and it would be one of the things that would haunt him uh, for the rest of his life. On October 26th of 1893, the Chicago Tribune published an article that cast considerable doubt on Garden City's lawsuit allegations against Ferris. And again, this is quoting from Circles in the, St- in the Sky. He st- they claimed he stole the idea and the details for his wheel from Summers. And in the Tribune article, George Baird of Minneapolis, Minnesota, declared that vertical passenger wheels were his creation and had the indisputable evidence to prove it, he had a patent on a Ferris-type device in 1889, and he showed that patent to the people at the Chicago Tribune. And so, you know, Baird was trying to build a wheel that was, you know, five to 700 feet in diameter and do all this other wacko stuff. Um, Baird said he needed four to six million to build it. He didn't get the money, but Baird, like so many other people, were kind of in line saying that Ferris had, uh, had done them wrong somehow. When I initially came into telling this story, I thought for sure I was going to figure out that Ferris was some sort of a thief that had stolen this idea, had robbed the glory, and had lived on the, you know, the fat of, of his, his theft uh, for the rest of his life. And that was, uh, as you're going to about to find out in rapid fashion, absolutely not the case. So the trial is ongoing and that patent fringe infringement deal as the wheel is going around as the fair is getting ready to close and the fair officially closes on October 30th. Now, if we want to put some marks in the life of, of Ferris, we can talk about the best day of his life, basically being June 21st of 1893 when the wheel opens. We can talk about a legitimate turn of events, um, date, whatever you want to call it, pinpoint on the uh, waypoint on the map of his life where things begin to absolutely go the wrong way and that date is october 30th of 1893 the day that the columbian exhibition closes the reason that this day will live in infamy in the life of, of ferris is because we can use it as a just as a charting point of of an unraveling and Effectively, what happens is this. The fair closes, but you could still pay 50 cents to come in and watch them take it apart. 
it was this destruction process that you could still you could still come in and that this beautiful city that we had built from nothing is now going to be completely leveled and destroyed and be removed from the face of the earth. Except the Ferris wheel, Ferris and his guys said, hey, listen, we have a lease until January on this thing. We still got thousands of people a day that are coming to ride this. We're not stopping. I mean, this is a for-profit enterprise here, and you're still getting your piece of the action, uh, you know, fair committee. We're going to keep running this thing. And that was not accepted. And so they ended up being basically a riot at the Ferris wheel uh, on the on the date of, of the, the fair's closing. Um, they decided they were going to keep running the wheel. The idea that... Uh, the fair was going to tell them to stop doing anything was was not going to stop them so um basically you know again to quote uh, circles in the sky by richard weingart weingart writes the ferris wheel company took the position that it had a lease until january and could operate the wheel until then however burnham and a certain exposition representative had a different understanding of the agreement Early in the morning of November 1st, a detachment of the exposition guards arrived at the wheel and told Luther Rice to close down the operation. He refused. The guards then forcibly began stopping people from entering the site. Ferris wheel employees responded by ordering the guards off the company's property. When they refused, push, pushing matches and fistfights broke out, and a near riot ensued. Word of the trouble was sent to the nearest police station. A squad of officers in uniform and civilian dress rushed to the scene. At that point, an exhibition guard attempted to physically remove a city detective from the wheel's platform. The officer broke loose, drew his revolver, and immediately arrested the man. Fairgoers presented present sided with the wheel personnel, and whenever an exposition guard was taken off to the police station, they cheered. During the night and well into the next day, several exhibition guards as well as a few wheel employees remained in police custody. Working in the dark of the night, the exposition committee hardly erected a fence to prevent people from entering the Plicense and riding the Ferris wheel. It was an effective move. Even though the wheel continued to turn, only a few people could get in and ride it, mainly fair workers and others able to climb over the newly erected fence. When Ferris arrived on November 2nd, he was incensed. An article in the New York Times noted his comments. Quote, I don't know what the animus is behind this shameful outrage of our rights and the rights of our visitors, but it is a shame and an outrage for the exhibition to close the fair this way. On November 3rd, the Ferris Wheel Company began preparing legal proceedings against the exposition for damages, and Ferris left for the East Coast to meet with interested party parties, I should say, and scout out other locations for his wheel. So that was going to be the plan. Okay, you don't want me in Chicago. I'm going to put this thing somewhere in the East Coast, and I am going to continue to make piles and piles of money with it. It was the first time that, that George Ferris was very, very wrong about something regarding his wheel because on 11-9, he was now sued on a second front. The Columbian Exposition uh, Company brought a lawsuit against him and the Ferris Wheel Company for a breach of agreement. They are suing claiming that they are owed nearly $100,000 that was effectively hidden from them by the folks operating the wheel, skimmed off the top, so to speak, so they were suing for that money. The 1893 World's Fair, despite its massive size and the fact that 27.5 million people in a country of 65 million people went to it, and uh, it barely made any money. So they were scraping to get whatever they could, and the Ferris wheel folks uh, were um, 
obviously after the whole rioting and everything else were kind of persona non grata and they figured there was a skim job going on there so they began a lawsuit so now ferris is being sued by them and the garden city observation wheel lawsuit is now still going on and this is the idea where now he's going to travel around he's going to find a place to put this wheel is it going to be new york is it going to be london is it going to be you know some other exotic location and he basically views this thing as a giant cash machine and anywhere he puts it uh, it's going to draw major crowds and it's going to make him a lot of money the one thing he refuses to do in any of this process is sell it he will not sell the thing to anybody he wants to maintain ownership and control of it and again I, I go back to this point i made a few minutes ago about the fact that he never patented this design he never patented his design despite the fact that he was such a control freak over it and wanted it to be remain you know cogent and profitable but also did not want to give up any sort of any sort of control over it uh, became a very large kind of tangle and a very large problem so in 1893 um, I should say in June of 1893 the stock market crashes and 600 banks fail 15,000 businesses collapse the economy really kind of ends up um, in free fall and this is not good news for a guy who is trying to move a massive steel engineering project that really doesn't have any sort of practical use other than as an entertainment venture so his options become limited and what he decides to do next is simply disassemble the wheel so he pays his you know construction guys to take the wheel down Again, this is money that's coming out of his pocket. Remember, no one is paying him anymore. It's not generating any income. And now he's going to pay close to a hundred grand out of his pocket to have this thing taken down and saved. We go to 1895 now. We're basically going to skip 1894 because the only thing that happens in 1894 is this thing is disassembled. And so from a newspapers.com search, I found the Minneapolis Daily Times of January 7th, 1895. Title of the story, Where's the Ferris? Subhead is, Big Wheel is not in New York as many think. Sub-subheadline, Pride and wonder of the Midway is now in pieces and piled up next to railroad tracks, resting for its next time whirling. From the Chicago Times, quote, Where's the Ferris wheel? It's not in New York. Everybody knows it's not in the dear old Midway. There's nothing there now but dirt. Dirt and teams hauling away more dirt. But if you want to see the Ferris wheel as it is now, you need to take a look at a fallen giant. You need to take close care to look at some of the huge bits and the business side of the machine, one of the largest ever built. Take a walk along the Sixth Street Avenue. Take a walk along Sixth Street, commencing at Madison Avenue and ending at Lexington. First at Woodland Avenue and Sixth Street, you'll find lying along the railroad tracks a huge heap of iron and steel. At first sight, it looks like nothing in particular but the monstrous mass of scrap iron. There are beams and stays, girders and cross pieces, cogged fellows and cog wheels, big spokes, and a derrick sprawled out all over it. The pieces are all piled up one after another in a confusing mass, but after all, when you look at it closely in a sort of order, for each and every bit has a mystic number on it, done in white paint. Climb around over the mass and you'll find somewhere else another piece to correspond with the number you first looked at. Each side of every joint in the massive machine was given a sign to guide the makers when someday the Ferris wheels again put up and sent a whirling. Sprockets with funny-shaped cogs, gear wheels and all, shapes and sizes, all big, all there. 
Across the street, lined up along the same railroad track, are big engines. The engines which whirled the big wheel and its cars of human freight when the midway was, well, the midway. These engines are rusty now. So is the rest of the machine, save for a few of the vital points, those which touch some other point in the whirling process. Those big teeth like cogs which everybody saw who rode in the wheel are coated with a white lead and better to withstand the rains and snows of the resting period and breathing spell of the giant that gave the world a new sensation. And it talks about the cars and it talks about all these other parts and pieces. And finally it says, then there is the wonder and marvel of it all. This is the masterpiece of the big shaft. It is lying along that same railroad track a block to the west of Lexington Ave. And this mass of metal, the triumph of a successful experimenter, is now playing a place, a playing place for children who know it's there. Most of them don't know what it is. Few of them understand it's part of the Ferris wheel, but not one of them knows it's a masterpiece of the machinist's skill and that it weighs no less than 70 tons. They know one thing, however, it's hollow. A boy and a good big boy at that can crawl through it and never be worried about being stuck. Boys and girls crawl through in the big axle every day. They play hide-and-seek in it, and they chase their dogs through it. It's resting solidly on a platform made of blocks of wood, and these have sunk somewhat into the ground, but they hold the 70-ton shaft and will hold it until it is moved. What is to be done with the wheel? Why it is to be taken to New York someday? Next March is the nearest time that has been yet announced for the fitting. Then came the arduous task of taking it all down. All summer long the men worked at it, and as it crumbled piece by piece everybody saw it go and supposed it was hauled away to the eastern town. But Chicago has it yet. When it's moved it will take 120 cars to carry it. There are 2,400 tons to be lifted on those cars, lifted off again, and then once more lifted into the position before the wonder of the fair is yet ready once more to recall memories of the midway. The wheel itself weighs no less than 1,300 tons, so the size of that piece of metal out on 61st Street can in a, mad, in a measure be nearly imagined. It looks now just as if the wheel has collapsed and fallen into a heap. There is one man beside the inventor, and for he whom is named who loves the wheel. And this is the engineer who ran it all summer long, C.H. Creter. He calls the wheel she, and speaks of it and the belonging as a part of her, and he puts it in time watching on all the pieces. Nobody has any idea that anybody else is going to steal any sections of the wheel, there isn't a piece that could be carted out without the use of a derrick. And so that is the story of the wheel until 1895. And then Ferris decides to really get after it and push his chips into the middle of the table. And he is going to have the wheel reconstructed again, this time right there in Chicago. It's not going to go to New York. It's not going to go to Paris. It's not going to go to London. It's going to go to Chicago. And it is going to cost him a lot of money to have it rebuilt, but he has a plan. And so some things start to happen maybe in a good fashion for Ferris. July 4th of 1893, the patent case is found in Ferris's favor. The legal costs are crushing. The judge basically has the Garden City Wheel Company have to pay Ferris $26. The only people that won here are the lawyers. It, it, it. It kind of sucked him dry to a degree. One of these lawsuits kind of sucked him dry, and that was the first one that got settled in a year and a month after it was uh, basically started. In mid-1894, he becomes sick with TB, and this is where the, the wheel has been disassembled and it's kind of sitting next to the railroad tracks. And so 
he has bridge jobs and he has other work that he's basically putting on the table and ignoring because now he's obsessed with finding a place for the Ferris wheel. He has officially kind of abandoned his his duties at his engineering company because he is obsessed with the wheel. So the engineering company starts to lose work. This 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 business he's built, which could be rocketed to the stratosphere because of his now famous persona across the United States, now becomes neglected and starts to lose contracts, and he starts to lose money. But in 1895, he's, he finds Lincoln Park in Illinois, just outside of Chicago, and he decides he is going to reassemble the wheel in Lincoln Park. He teams up with a guy named Charles Yerkes, who is a very, very wealthy, um, let's call it a very, very wealthy magnate of streetcars in Chicago. Yerkes also was one of the guys who funded the construction of the London Underground back in the day. So he was a big wheel with loads of dough. And they were going to need a lot of money because everything they did in 1893, effectively they're going to have to do again in 1895 in Lincoln Park. So they're going to rebuild the wheel, complete soup to nuts. They're going to have a roof garden, a restaurant. They're going to create this kind of mini amusement park around it with exhibits and attractions and bandstands and all that type of good stuff. So February 25th of 1895, the fellows request a building permit, and they request a building permit to construct the wheel and to begin this process of uh, opening their concession. And this is where things really get ugly because the local neighborhood freaks out. They want nothing, absolutely nothing to do with this. Um, they They don't want the wheel in their neighborhood the economy's bad. Um, they effectively are decided that they do not want an amusement park in what is a pretty nice part of the city. They don't want to look at this wheel every day, and they don't want the responsibility of having all this new traffic and all this other problems coming in. So this is where the rebellion against the Ferris wheel starts. Quoting Circles in the Sky, when, on February 25, 1895, the Ferris Wheel Company took out a building permit to build a small powerhouse structure for its wheel, nearby residential property owners tried to stop construction. They complained that the wheel was an undesirable industrialism invading a residential district. When local property owners could not stop construction, they created a local option district that incorporated Ferris Wheel Park. It required the consent of local voters for any license petition and immediately denied Ferris and his associates a liquor license for the park's proposed restaurant. The property owner also got the law passed requiring a $50 a day license on any form of amusement located within 1,500 feet of a public park, in this case, Jackson Park. And as I mentioned, Ferris had been battling tuberculosis in 1894, and he worked in a continuing fashion Uh, kind of a relentless way he never backed off despite his doctors kind of begging him to and so his physical condition by the time we get to 1895 is really not good Um, not to triple down on a point but we've had these moments over his life that he has had failing health in moments of very high stress and now it turns out he has tuberculosis and things are um, there should this should be a period of him relaxing getting away from the jobs getting away from the office getting away from the stress Instead, what it is, is a period where he is going hammer down, fully obsessed with getting this project put in Jackson Park in Chicago. In April of 1895, in the midst of all this, uh, his father passes away at the age of 77 out in California. And it is another blow to him 
emotionally after having just lost all that money in one lawsuit, having another lawsuit that is now dragged on to its second year against the uh, exposition company. And so this is all these things that are kind of adding up. Now we add on the death of his father. Simultaneously to his father passing away, there is now multiple people around the world who had gone to the Colombian exposition and now want to build their own Ferris wheels, and there's nothing to stop them. James Graydon is a guy who is an American, um, got a British patent for, <laughs> for a Ferris wheel. And then there's another guy named Walter Bassett. Now, between Graydon and Bassett, they would go on to build Ferris wheels all around Europe, and they would do it in the in the time frame that, um, <laughs> that Ferris is alive for. And again, there's no financial no financial gain for Ferris. He doesn't see a dime of this. In fact, he's bleeding money. And all the way through 1895, he is constantly in court fighting for the permits, fighting for the ability to have his, his wheel in Lincoln Park. Now, despite the fact he's in court all year long, he does not stop uh, building the thing. So he is still spending the money to do it. And so on no, rather October 3rd of 1895, there is a story from the Portland Daily Press of Portland, Maine, titled Ferris Wheel Ready, Famous World's Attraction Again in Position. October 2nd, uh, Dateline, I should say, October 2nd, 1895. The big Ferris wheel, which was once one of the great features in the Midway, is once more in operation. Ever since it was torn down at the close of the World's Fair, Ferris has been an incongruous, the Ferris wheel has been an incongruous mass of iron until a little over six weeks ago when it was transported to the north side of Chicago. For four months, the workmen have been at work at Wrightwood Ave and Clark Street preparing to put the Ferris wheel in motion once more. A massive foundation of crossbars, concrete, and solid masonry was put in. This is 29 feet deep, and it took nearly three months and $40,000 to complete that portion of the work alone. This complete, the workmen began to shape the mass of iron and steel into the wheel, which delighted so many visitors at the World's Fair. For 35 days, this work has been going on, and now the wheel is complete again. Yesterday, the large engines which operate the big wheel were started, and the 2,300 tons of iron and steel were put in motion. The wheel revolves as easily as it did before, and at nearly all the clank and jar that attended its operators at Jackson Park is absent and cannot be heard one half a block away. The same powerful engines drive the machinery, and the whole wheel went together without a hitch. During this past week, the management have had a force of 250 men busy rushing the work, and inside of a week, it is expected to have the big wheel ready to throw open to the public. Thursday was the day it was fixed, but it's doubtful if the wheel will be ready by that time. The ears, of, the ears have all been remodeled, and now the interior of the hardwood cars, I should say, is finished and glazing of the double-strength French-plated windows is complete. The ground around the wheel is in an unfinished state. It's intended to erect a summer opera pavilion just north of the wheel and around the machinery. In the southwest corner of the grounds will be a dining hall and cafe. The main floor is to consist of a large dining hall, the second devoted to a private dining room and large banquet hall, the third floor reserved for the use of employees. It was not the intention of the management to open the grounds before next spring when they have arranged to have the grounds beautified by 10,000 roses, 28 small trees, shrubs, and 15,000 electric lights. An orchestra of 30 pieces will discourse music and the opera pavilion will have an English opera for an attraction. The wheel itself will be open in a week. If the company carries out its present intentions, the visitors will have an opportunity to see Chicago from the clouds. The wheel is located on one of the highest points in the city. 
The wheel can be easily seen from Garfield Park. From the top of a much better view of the city can be secured than when at Jackson Park. It is the intention to make the whole single admission fee, giving visitors as much of a ride as they want. After paying at the gate, a person can attend the opera, ride an hour, get out of the wheel, dine at a restaurant, then go back for another ride, all for one price of admission, with the exception of the dinner, of course. The grounds will be transformed into a park, and efforts will be made to make wheel parties a fad among the fashionable people next year, and elegantly furnished dining rooms will be one of those attractions. So he doesn't stop. He just keeps going and going and going, and he's just, there's not any money coming in. It is all going out. He is now in late in late uh, November of 1895. They didn't even open the thing really at all before it got too cold for anybody to ride. So the wintertime becomes consumed with more judgments against what they're trying to do, no liquor license, um, more injunctions, and more kind of gerrymandering by the local government. And he has still not even finished the park. So they built the wheel, but he still has to complete all the landscaping and all these other construction projects. And Yurikas, his partner, starts to get very kind of freaked out about what's going on because, frankly, he's a pretty good business guy, and it's just not not looking so good. Then we get to 1896, and 1896 is is really more of the same. Um, it does the wheel does open up in Lincoln Park. The wheel does work, uh, but it is in a much smaller scale. They have no liquor license. The city does not want them there, and so very very few people are actually attending and riding this thing, and it is losing money month after month, to the point that Ferris about halfway through the year has to sell his first engineering company and then has to sell his second engineering company, all because he is going broke. His wife, Margaret, has left him. Uh, he is he is basically he is basically bleeding out financially. He continues to sell off some of, some of his interest in the wheel. He still has his stake, but he has to keep selling it off. Throughout 1896, quoting from Circles in the Sky, in an attempt to meet his financial obligations, Ferris not only greatly diluted his interest in the wheel company, but sold his ownership in his two engineering firms, GWG Ferris and Company and Ferris Kaufman and Company, and in the Pittsburgh Construction Company. By November 11, 1896, his prized engineering companies belonged to his partners. He gave as reason that he was tired of this business and was going into consulting engineering for himself. In the final analysis, though, the incredibly rapid rise and disastrous fall of his great invention during the nation's first depression had broken him in finance and in spirit. That is November 11th of 1896. George Washington Gale Ferris is 37 years old. Reporting from the Pittsburgh Daily Post, November 22, 1896. Headline, George Ferris mortally ill, down with typhoid fever. Quote, George Washington Gale Ferris, who conceived and built the world-famous Ferris wheel, is dying at the Mercy Hospital in this city. He is afflicted with a serious attack of typhoid fever. His illness, illness has been brief, and it was only Friday that he was taken to the hospital. The attending physicians say, as his system is greatly run down by overwork and the constitution of the man is not strong enough to stand the ravages of wasting fever. His death is but a question of time. His wife came here from Canton yesterday, and she might be here with her husband in his dying moments. George Ferris was born at Galesburg, Illinois, February of 1895. Goes through his early education, talks about how he grew up with all things we have covered. 
1887. While pursuing that vocation, he independently formed the firm GWG Ferris and Company of Pittsburgh. The concern still exists, although he has sold his interest. It was in 1892 that Mr. Ferris conceived the idea of the wonderful Ferris wheel that has attracted the attention of all the people of the world and which will go down in history as one of the greatest wonders of the century. The monster passenger wheel conceived by Mr. Ferris was built under his personal supervision in this city. Every visitor to the World's Fair at Chicago recalls with a thrill of delight the grandeur of the majestic wheel in the southern end of the famous Midway. During the fair season and for some time later, the wheel was operated as an enterprise of the Ferris Wheel Company, but was later disposed of to another company which has operated in various places. A peculiar coincidence in the business and social life of Mr. Ferris is that the business and social life of his partner, Mr. Gustav Kaufman, also is of the city. Both gentlemen were born on the same day, they were schoolboys together, and likewise were college chums at the Rensselaer Institute. When the Ferris firm was organized, it was the schools and college, school and college chums who comprised the company. End of the concern. That is not looking so good for George Washington Gale Ferris, and he was dead 24 hours later. Kansas City Star the next day, 23rd of November, 1896, inventor Ferris at rest. Dateline, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. GWG Ferris, inventor and builder of the Ferris wheel, died at Mercy Hospital in this city yesterday morning of typhoid fever. His illness was recent, and he was taken out of the hospital only Friday. According to his physicians, the resistant power of his system had been deteriorated by overwork, and it is known he had sustained he had sustained puniary reverses of late. And once again, it is an obituary, so it rolls through his life. Talks about what he did, talks about the wheel, talks about the fact that the wheel survived the storm. It ends with this paragraph, quote, If Ferris had lived, he would probably have accomplished other feats comparable to the one that made him famous, for his brain was continually busy with equally startling projects. Before his last illness, he spoke of making Chicago a seaport in less than five years, but it was noncommittal as to the means. It is known that he had a considerable faith in compressed air as a means of transmitting energy, and as to electricity, his hopes were even more sanguine. He thought that cooking as well as heating and lighting was to be accomplished by electricity, generated principally by the water power, and predicted great futures for cities near waterfalls like Buffalo, New York. He considered that the coal would largely be superseded by water in the manner indicated, and that the dust cost and other objectionable features of the former would be eliminated. He said that if he had money to invest, it would be near water power, he thought the cheap energy generation, the whole program of electricity, was about to be solved. Kind of interesting that he is, in my opinion, visionary in that regard. He sees what the future of electricity is. I mean, to me, I think that's a really, really interesting thing that he was that prescient, that smart to see in the and and see it in such clear terms. Hydroelectric power, this guy's talking about in 1896. As you can imagine, the story of his death was covered by newspapers all over the country, and they all pretty much tell the same story about the wheel, the incredible success of the wheel, and what's interesting is there are so few details as to how bad the wheel is doing in Chicago by this point that no one really talks about that. They don't talk about the fact that he's gone broke. Um, he has completely, uh, you know, completely wiped out this fortune he made all because he refused to give any control away. 
he could have sold the thing to Coney Island and, again, maybe doubled his money and walked away, but that was not something he was able to do. On Wednesday, November 18th, the week before he had sold his engineering company, Ferris became seriously ill while at his hotel, this from Circles in the Sky. He was rushed to Pittsburgh's Mercy Hospital, and at first it was thought he suffered from exhaustion induced by overwork and worry and from years of suffering the ravages of consumption. But he quickly began showing the symptoms of typhoid fever, raging fever, red rash, vomiting, diarrhea, and excruciating abdominal pain. Not uncommon in Pittsburgh during Ferris's time, typhoid fever was caused by salmonella bacteria in contaminated food or water, usually the result of too little separation between sewage and drinking water. Ugh. According to one source, Friday the patient showed signs for the worse, became delirious, and it was evident his illness was very serious. And that was when they knew effectively he was not going to make it. He did die alone. Died alone, 11 a.m., November 22nd. There was nobody at his side. Margaret, his wife, said he died suddenly at Mercy Hospital while I was absent. Dino Ferris was 37 years old, three months shy of his 38th birthday. And it is kind of amazing to think about, of the three guys in his family, all three of them died very young. Him, 37. His brother, Albert, at 46. His brother, Eddie, at 35. Official cause of death was listed as typhoid fever. 27th of uh, November, 1896. From the newspaper at the Topeka State Journal of Topeka, Kansas, Ferris's body is cremated. The body of the late George Washington Gale Ferris was cremated Tuesday afternoon. The cremation was a result of a dying request on part of the famous inventor of the Ferris wheel. The ashes were gathered into a silver urn and interred in a vault. It is said that the Manhattan Insurance Company, which carried an insurance of $20,000 upon the life of Mr. Ferris last week, lifted the policy from a Pittsburgh bank where it had been placed as collateral for a loan of $1,500. Mr. Ferris has said surrendered his policy to liquidate a note, the insurance company lifting the object obligation at the bank and canceling the policy. It is also said that at one time Mr. Ferris carried insurance to the extent of $160,000 on his life, but that a large amount of that was held as collateral by banks for loans. Ruh, 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 ruh. He dies broke, broker than broke. And this is a great shock to the people that thought they were due for a large inheritance from this guy. Like uh, his ex-wife, Margaret, and he had split by this time. They never had children or anything. And he, um, you know, he, he, he died alone and he died broke. It's very sad because of who this guy was. And now we have to go back to the sad story of the wheel. So the wheel is is sitting there and it's doing... It's work in 1896. It has lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so, you know, it's, it's such a weird timing twist. So he dies in, let's call it right around Thanksgiving. As he was slipping into the end days of his life, specifically on November 14th, quoting the New York Times, in a headline entitled Receiver for the Ferris Wheel, and I quote, The original Ferris Wheel and its paraphernalia are now in the hands of a receiver. Judge Horton this morning, upon the application of Richard H. Vose, a creditor appointed Andrew Odendonk to take care of the assets. 
A bond of $10,000 was approved and taken. The company was nine months in arrears on the interest due to the mortgage bonds of $300,000. The company is totally insolvent. The failure has been expected for some time as the expenses during the season were so heavy it would have required an enormous business to balance the accounts. One can one can maybe draw a line and say that he knew that was coming and that is what finally broke him or what finally kind of sent him to his death. But it's just really sad. That's in November of 96. We go to March of 1897, again in the New York Times. Ferris wheel taxes unpaid. Quote, Scott McVeigh, the town collector for Lakeview, will probably have his hands for sale, on his hands for sale the Ferris wheel. This morning, Judge Heaney entered an order allowing McVeigh to levy the wheel for personal property taxes due, amounting to $1,113, which the receiver of the Ferris wheel company has neglected to pay. Under the orders of the court, Mr. McVeigh can seize the wheel or so much of it, if sold, produce sufficient money to defray the cost of unpaid taxes. But yet it keeps operating, which is kind of an amazing thing. It's losing all this money, but uh, apparently they the idea here is like at least they can generate some revenue. I'm not sure how they actually keep it operating, but they do. And so... As the thing kind of is moving along here, we go to 1897, and the hits just keep on coming. The title of this story, Aeronaut Dashed to Death, from the New York Times, October, uh, rather, August of 1897. At Electric Park tonight, Walter Allen, an aeronaut, dropped 150 feet from a balloon and was instantly killed, being mangled almost beyond recognition. The accident was caused by the parachute failing to work. Allen was well-known as a balloonist, having made many ascents with success. Last night at the same place, another aeronaut jumped from the same balloon with the same parachute and broke his leg from the same cause. A few weeks ago, another parachute jumper leapt from the Ferris wheel and was killed. Yeah, so now we've um, now we get a wheel that's uh, basically used as a base jumping point of 1897, and people are dying in this park. It's kind of a sad, sad end to this thing. Their petition in 1897 basically begging begging to get a permit to sell beer on the wheel and the city continues to just pound these guys into dust and they say no can't do it ferris dies as we talked about in november of 1897 and here comes march of 1898 from the pittsburgh daily post ashes of inventor ferris not held for payment wait a second what in reply to some misunderstanding as the deposition of the ashes of George Washington Gale Ferris, the late inventor, Hudson Sampson, proprietor of Sampson's Crematory, said yesterday that the remains of Mr. Ferris are at the disposal of his relatives when the proper legal order is presented. Mr. Sampson denies the ashes have been retained waiting for payment of his bill. He claims that in law, that in law the wife has not the first right of custody over her husband's remains, the marriage contract having become void by death. The parents, brothers, and sisters, he says, takes precedent. What does that mean? Well, it means that his ashes are sitting at a crematorium six months after he died, and no one's come to pick him up yet. And once again, it's March 8th of 1898. This is the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. The ashes of the late George Washington Gale Ferris, the famous inventor of the Ferris wheel, have for some time been kept at Undertaker Hudson Sanson's crematory, waiting the legal claimant. Parties from Chicago 
and from Mrs. Ferris are now negotiating to get these ashes. An order from the court is necessary to get them. The remains have been held for cremation expenses. I mean, it's insane, right? That nobody's come to pick them up. And this goes on for a long time. It goes on for a long time to the point where uh, a business associate who is not even part of his family ends up being the guy who who goes and gets him. I should mention that in January of 1897, after Ferris had died, the Columbian Exhibition uh, Exposition Company rather won the lawsuit against he and his Ferris wheel company to the tune of $85,000. If he wasn't dead already, that would have killed him. So just to, just to, just to take a quick jump back here, um, on October 30th, right? Or November 1st, whichever day we want to pick there of 1893, they closed the wheel. And from that point forward, it has been all downhill from there. He was served with these papers. Again, he was dead before the, before the decision was made, but that would have been another $85,000 off the top. In a shocking twist, the Ferris wheel operates in Lincoln Park until 1903. And June of 1903, we uh, stories start popping up that, uh, hey, like this, this, may be like, this may be the end of the line for the Ferris wheel. And so on May 29th, the story from the New York Times reads, Unless someone buys the Ferris wheel, Chicago may lose the great structure. An order was entered in Judge Chertow's court today and to the effect that three weeks after June 1st, the wheel will be sold by Master and Chancery Victor Elding. No one would, should no one bid on the structure as a whole, it would be torn down and sold as junk. So that's it. Uh, they're broke. The only asset they have is the wheel, and the wheel will be sold for junk if nobody decides to buy it. Well, now we go one month later to June. June of 1903. New York Times, Ferris wheel sold. The Ferris wheel, the massive structure which was one of the main attractions to the visitors of the Midway during the World's Fair, has been sold. A junk dealer bid in the big wheel, and the sum paid for the engines, buildings, boilers was $1,800. $1,800. The wheel cost originally $362,000. Outstanding against it are bonds amounting to $300,000 and a floating debt of $100,000. And they made $1,800 back. Insane. It's insane. It's an insane story that this thing has gone so far out of favor that was once one of the great attractions of the world is now this colossus that absolutely nobody wants. So who bought this thing? Well, whoever bought it is kind of a neat story. It's called the Chicago Home Wrecking Company. And the wreckers at the time were um, the, the term wrecker, a home wrecker, was a basically recovery salvage type of company. And the recovery salvage company's job was to disassemble things and then sell what they had. So the idea that they're not actually destroying the wheel, they buy it because they're going to take it apart and do something with it. These, this was the same company that was hired to do things like take apart the Columbian Exposition. Um, they were specialists in this. 
they would disassemble buildings and then they would sell you the hinges they'd sell you the nails they would it's almost like an automotive junkyard except it would be for structures and buildings and so believe it or not the $1800 um was not accepted it would go back into court and ultimately a final bid of 8150 was uh was accepted by the Chicago house wrecking company so what did they do with it they took it apart and they set it aside they tried to sell it they they said hey i mean we can sell everything else this was like an early very fascinating company it was almost like an early version of amazon they sold everything and so they had this wheel and they thought man somebody somewhere may may want to buy this thing and so it necessarily wasn't necessarily somebody somewhere but in 1903 there turned out to be a fortuitous kind of turn of events chicago tribune june 3rd of 1903 ferris wheel lives anew though sold as junk it will revolve again and this story talks about the fact that you know they they sell the wheel um that the scene is kind of sad luther rice is there the 1800 bid comes in and, and luther rice is like oh my god you know the the engines alone are worth ten thousand dollars and the boilers are seven thousand and the steel this and that and the other thing and um what chicago the chicago uh, house wrecking company bought was not just a lot of scrap steel but they also bought a pretty expensive project to take this thing down and they do take it down and piece by piece they set it all aside and they wait for their opportunity and their opportunity would come in the form of the st louis world's exposition of 1904 unbelievably the the organizers of the st louis world's fair needed a main attraction and they got wind that there was a ferris wheel sitting disassembled in chicago and that uh, it looked like they were gonna they were gonna need something to, to kind of match the grandeur of that 1893 World's Fair, and they didn't have a whole lot of money to spend, and so they came up with a deal, and they had the wheel transported to St. Louis. They had it assembled, and to quote "Circles in the Sky," the tall wheel revolving in the center of the fairgrounds was popular with fairgoers and was the star of yet another exposition. Its owners claimed there was no question that the Ferris wheel was doing better business at St. Louis than any other concession upon the grounds. The wheel reportedly carried more than 1.5 million passengers and turned a profit of $215,000 during the event. At the close of the exposition, Chicago house wreckers negotiated with the operators of Coney Island Amusement Park to move the wheel to New York. Several minor modifications were discussed. For instance, the lighting of the wheel can be arranged so that the wheel will seem to be revolving as a massive fire. This, as the wheel of itself, can be seen by every vessel coming into the port of New York, but with Ferris's discussions, as Ferris's discussions happened with Coney Island, the Chicago House Wreckers negotiations fell through. The wrecking company's next move differed considerably from the one Ferris made. In reality, he had been too close to his brainchild and too infatuated, dreaming it would become an icon in the order of the Eiffel Tower. Chicago had little or no such dream. The wrecking company had to contract to dismantle and remove all structures and facilities at the St. Louis Exposition, just as it had done for the Chicago Exposition of 93. This time, included in its assignment, was removing the huge steel and iron observation wheel that itself owned. Before the wheel came down, though, the United States endured its worst earthquake in modern history, the Great San Francisco Earthquake of 1906. 
The catastrophe destroyed buildings and set off deadly fires citywide. It made for a somber backdrop for the final hours in the life of the 13-year-old Ferris wheel. The end of the greatest wheel ever built, the original Ferris wheel, to many a symbol of America's engineering prowess near the end of the 19th century, came on May 11th of 1906, a bright, clear, warm, and sunny Missouri spring day. It was dynamited into a junk heap of tangled metal, but the wheel died hard. It took 200 pounds of dynamite in two stages to make it final. Salvaged and sold for $75,950 were the wheel's boilers, engines, plate glass, opera chairs, and 2,700 tons of structural iron and steel. According to Eleanor Harris, its massive main shaft, made specifically of hardened steel, was shipped on two flat cars to the wrecking company's facilities in Chicago, and the last remnant of the once-proud wheel remained at that facility until 1918, when, with acetylene torches, the shaft was cut up and sold for scrap. Interestingly, a few people are not convinced of this. Several St. Louis historians believe that because the axle was so large, it was buried near where the wheel stood in 1906. The epilogue on this story, which is now we're talking about at least 3 million people rode this thing. It made tens of thousands of revolutions flawlessly. The only people that ever died from it were the ones that, like idiots, jumped off it with parachutes. But the, the end result of this story, and to me the part of it that fascinates me, and that brings us really to the conclusion of all this, is the fact that once it was dynamited and taken apart, no one really knows where anything, any part of it went. There are some people that claim, oh, they used the steel to build bridges, and you can go to certain uh, you know, certain bridge projects that were built around this time in the early 1900s, and you can see pieces of steel that looked like, um, that looked like they were from the Ferris wheel, that they have that arching kind of look to it, these arched bridges. Oh, man, those, those pieces came from the Ferris wheel. And the reality is... I, there's no hard evidence to prove any of that. And when we talk about the Chicago uh, house wrecking company and what they were known for and what they were good at, it was not at this point in the lifespan of something to sit on it for a long time. They probably thought themselves incredibly fortunate that they basically hit the timing right in that they buy this loser of a useless item that has cost Ferris his life, has cost investors hundreds of thousands of dollars, put one of the biggest streetcar magnates in America nearly into financial ruin, but they had bought this thing that offered pennies, pennies, pennies on the dollar and set it up in St. Louis with their own labor that they're already paying and put 1.5 million people through it and probably made hundreds of thousands of bucks. I guarantee you the Chicago house wrecking company made more money on the Ferris wheel than George Washington and Gail Ferris made. And so at this point in the story, it comes to an end. In 1906, the dynamite happens, the wheel is blown up, the pieces scatter about, most likely melted down into other projects. There is no record of any existing piece of the original Ferris wheel on the planet. Nobody has a piece of the steel, Nobody has one of the original seats. There's some trinkets and toys that exist, but that's it. The same can be said for George Washington Gale Ferris. Nobody knows what happened to his ashes. They were collected by a business partner 
His wife, who was by then his ex-wife, even though the papers were not reporting it that way, kind of went nuts. She got herself involved in a bunch of very strange things, became married to some crazy faith healer guy. She died in 1927. She was running a boarding house in the West Coast. But as for Ferris, nobody knows what happened to his ashes. Adding to his mystery, nobody has any of his personal papers. There is one existing photo of the man. He was never had he was never photographed with his wife. He was never photographed with anybody on a project. He was never even photographed apparently on the day that the the wheel opened. One existing picture of this guy by himself, a portrait style photo. No papers, no remnants, no pocket watches, no these are his spectacles. No anything. So in the end, George Washington, Gail Ferris, and his Ferris wheel completely disappeared from the face of the earth. Which is astonishing when you think about it. It was the most famous piece of engineering in the world for a decade plus in the 1890s and early 1900s. He was, for a very, very brief period of a couple of years seen as one of the most famous engineers on the planet he had wealth he had fame he had esteem of his colleagues and he also had an obsession with something he came up with that he was convinced 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 was maybe a little bit more than it actually was we live in a fickle society today we lived in a fickle society back in the 1900s and 1890s as george washington gale ferris found out People do something once and then they move on. It is the blessing and the curse of us here in the great United States of America. We don't have a long memory for certain things. And for George Washington Gale Ferris, his obsession did not intersect with that mindset. So there you have it. There is an exhaustive look back in the history of the very first Ferris wheel. I think it is a fascinating story. It is, of course, a story of tragedy with Ferris himself. It's a story of great engineering triumph. People like... Luther Rice would go on to have great careers. William uh, Gronau, who was that young engineer, the kind of guy sweating bullets as he comes up with this thing and standing underneath it as it operates for the first time, would go on to have a great career uh, as an engineer. So the, the, the people associated with Ferris made out far better than Ferris himself. He was, as I mentioned earlier, a guy who was convinced that he was put on this planet to do big things, and he did one very, very big thing. And that of course, was his undoing. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Dorkamoto Podcast. I'm Brian Loans, and I'll be back soon with more interesting mechanical history, and who knows what we'll be talking about next. Once again, I just want to thank the primary sources I used for the research on this show, Ferris Wheels and Illustrated History by Norman Anderson. It is an incredible tome on the history of Ferris Wheels and, of course, Circles in the Sky by Richard Weingart, which is an absolutely phenomenal and really the only existent material that really dives into the personal life of George Washington Gale Ferris. Beyond all that, newspapers.com has been and continues to be an incredible resource for the Dorkamoto podcast, able to access newspapers from the 1800s to present. And, of course, I use the New York Times archive as well to dig into any historic stories they had about Ferris. And beyond all that, many, many, many hours of Internet searching. A very interesting project here, one that, um, well, I hope you enjoyed, and we'll be back soon. This episode of the Dorkamoto podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. 
Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO. That's J-E-R-K-O for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. They care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off. 